welcome back to Harsh Truths Podcast. It's been a little over a year since our last episode, and I suppose before we begin, I should kind of explain why we had such a long absence. Although, if I'm being honest with myself, the podcast has sort of had a history of fits and starts. Shortly after the episode with Kufar was published, I noticed that my companion animal Mazer was acting a little unlike himself. And after some testing and waiting, we unfortunately found out that he had lung cancer. And in that moment, everything else became so much less important. My primary focus in life from that time until the time of his passing in June of this year uh, was his health and his comfort and ensuring that he had the best last few months of his life that he could possibly have. And so things, yeah, they took a back seat. And this podcast is one of those things that took a back seat. I do have to say that during this time and at the time following his passing, the outpouring of love and support that I received from the noise community sustained me. There were people who reached out from Japan, Europe, from Canada, from all over the United States, and I I really felt a sense of community that made me proud to be a, a, a member of, of the world of noise. So when I felt that I could return to doing noise and, and, and doing things in the community more regularly, my first priority was to get this podcast back up and started because I feel that this has the potential to serve a greater purpose in our community and bring us all closer together if I have to be kind of cliche about it. So we're back and I'm very happy to announce we're going to stay consistent. I have the next half a year of episodes already recorded. Uh, We're working on editing them. Hopefully the sound has improved since last time. Uh, Many thanks to Jay uh, Linsky for working really hard on helping me improve the quality of the sound for these podcasts. I've started a Patreon and a GoFundMe. Both can be found uh, either patreon.com or gofundme.com slash harsh truths podcast. If you want to be a monthly supporter, you get a lot of perks such as bonus episodes, uh, extra content, those kind of things. If you just want to give a one-time donation, uh, you still get some perks And all the fundraising business is just going to go towards upgrading the sound equipment, uh, helping cover travel costs for future episodes and things like that. In my absence, there's been an excellent podcast that's come up that I think everyone that listens to this probably already listens to. But if not, please check out Noise Extra. Gray and Mike and a revolving door of guests do an incredible job of taking a release from the history of noise and doing the deepest deep dive one could possibly do. And I think that there's a, that's a really important uh, 
gift to the community that not everyone can be as equipped to to deliver gray and, and Mike clearly have an extensive history and knowledge of of noise and a, a vocabulary that few possess to transmit that information and, and hand it downward. A recurring theme in a lot of the episodes that I've recorded lately uh, has been the importance of having, if not an actual person, at least some some kind of vehicle for transmitting the culture that that goes that goes into the noise community from one generation to the next. And I I think that noise extra will be a critical part of our history moving forward. If I'm being completely honest, so go to noise extra, check them out. They also have a Patreon. You should definitely support them and, uh, listen to noise as they say. I'm very thrilled to introduce our first guest back after this hiatus. If you don't know who Richard Ramirez is, then you probably don't listen to noise or perhaps you're just very brand new at listening to noise, which is fine. But Richard plays a pivotal role, particularly in the American harsh noise scene from the late 80s, early 90s, well into today. And I couldn't have been more happy with the way this interview turned out. I hope that everyone enjoys it. And without further ado, I'm going to kick it over to the interview. Thanks so much for taking some time to sit with me and and have a conversation. And just to get things rolling, can you yeah. introduce yourself? I'm Richard Ramirez. <laughs> <laughs> it's always weird at first. Like it is. Cool. Um, uh, so a lot of people ask the question about your name. Your name is Richard Ramirez. Yes, that's your that's your real name. You're not pretending to no. use the you're not no. yeah so. um it i don't have a middle name it's just richard ramirez um uh richard comes from my father um my biological father ramirez comes from my father who raised me so um that's where the name is from and uh so it has nothing to do with the serial killer at all <laughs> it's just a it's just a coincidence. It's a coincidence. And there's a lot of Richard Ramirez that live in Houston. I actually sure. looked one time when I was younger, uh, and there was actually thirteen <laughs> in, oh, yeah. in Houston. Yeah, yeah. Well so the majority of my family that didn't leave Mexico, Texas, or move to Ohio live in a town outside of Portland called Asherton. And when you go there and you look in the phone book, there's just like Leva, 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 Leva. So it's funny because <laughs> when I grew up in the South, everyone's like, your name's weird. Like, you know, yeah. like, how do you even spell it? And I have this really traumatic uh, memory of, of being in, uh, I think it was like eighth grade uh -huh. and the lady over the intercom trying to say my name to go home just said, can Joey Labia come to the front office? <laughs> And I knew what that meant. So I was sinking into my chair and my wow. teacher just had this, you know, grin. And she's like, I think they meant you. Uh, so, so yeah. Um, were, where were you born? I was born in, in Houston, Texas. In Houston? Yeah. Okay, cool. 
Uh, and you lived there up until you you moved recently, correct? Yes, and so three years ago, I moved up here to Pennsylvania. Were you always in the same neighborhood of Houston, like growing up? No. Or? Well, when I was when I was younger, my yeah, my parents always lived in the same house, and they still live there. Um, but I didn't. Like when I moved out, I lived in the city. So uh, at one point, and then when I was living with Sean, we lived on the outskirts of the city. But my parents still live in the same house that I grew up in. Wow, off of Blairwood. <laughs> Okay. That's like, that's not that common. That's awesome though. Yeah. If I remember correctly from interviews I've read, oh, also, I think you might be the only noise artist who has a release that has a recorded interview on it. Because uh, oh, yeah. you there's a release that hospital put yeah, out. Yeah. And if anyone has that and wants to sell it to me, you know where to go. <laughs> but I, I found it online. I was like, oh, this is awesome. This is a, and it's so cool because it's just you, it, it's you and a tape player and you're just yeah. interviewing yourself, which is great. Well, someone had the idea for me to do something like that before, and I was doing an interview with a guy in in Utah, and he just said it would be nice just for you to tape yourself answering questions that I send you. So I I did that for him, and then uh, when Dominic came up with the idea of of doing this set, um, I thought that would be something interesting to include as well. So I did that. Yeah. for him as well yeah and i and i loved it uh and i and i also thought it was great because it wasn't like buried at the end of a cd it was like right there it was like there a track and then i think yeah. the, the second part of the interview was the, the third track but um I, I believe if i remember correctly in there you said that you you had started you you were already doing noise by the time you were in high school like before you yeah before you moved out i'm assuming yeah were you drawn towards music as a kid like as a young like a real little kid or yeah, when I was really young, um, my brothers, uh, I have two older brothers, and they were sort of in the alternative music scene. I mean, they liked some of that stuff, uh, like The Cure, Depeche Mode, and stuff like that. And um, so I met a, a guy in sixth grade who uh, was into like a lot of punk um also like EBM type stuff. And so he kind of introduced me into that kind of music. And I, I really got into that. So when I was in high school, I was sort of like the goth kid in high school. Um, but when I started listening to uh, bands like Bauhaus or Susie and the Banshees, and then it went into like Skinny Puppy and stuff like that, I always liked the stuff that a lot of the industrial EBM type bands were doing that were more instrumental or experimental tracks. Um, and so there was a show in, in Houston called Monster Island Beach Party that used to play some of that stuff. And um, so I started hearing other artists like Throbbing Gristle, SPK, and stuff like that. Um, and I really liked it. So I started getting into that stuff. And that kind of led me to like Nurse With Wound current 93 non and stuff like that. But I wanted something harsher than that. And I, um, I was recommended like the haters and that was, I think the first time I heard the haters was probably in 87. Okay. And, uh, I really loved it. <laughs> and, um, and then I heard non, and I like 
some of his work. Um, and uh, especially like the Live in London release, uh, Sick Tour, stuff like that, I really liked. And um, and so it kind of started from there, and I started hearing more experimental into noise artists. Okay. For for me, when I started, I had a. a this has been gone, gone over so many times, and when I when I do these that I don't want to go over it again. But uh-huh. you know, I had a kind of a, a unconventional up, upbringing, and so when I finally had access access to music that I wanted to listen to, uh, I already had plenty of like anger and, and aggression yeah. built up that I sought out, and and because I had access to the internet. Uh, I knew that that stuff existed. I could search right. and find it. And so it was almost at the same time as I was really discovering that music spoke to me, I was also mm-hmm. realizing that like a particular kind of music spoke to me. Uh, you know, I know some people like they grew up with like classical music playing in their house when they were right. kids. And so they always loved music. But then when they got older, like, you know, they heard Flipper or something and realized like, oh, I, I like weird shit. Right. So did you ever have like a moment like that when you were younger, like where it was like, Oh, I'm not going to like radio music. I'm, this is some, like I'm drawn towards something different and was music that first thing or was it something else? Yeah, it it was. I, um, I was going to clubs really young. I was probably 14, 15 years old when I was actually going to clubs where it was 18 and up or 21 and up. And I was able to get into them. And there were a lot of um, clubs that played a lot of the gothic, industrial, EBM, whatever, all of that. And um, there one particular club, which is still in Houston, Numbers was the name of the club. And I, I would go to all the time. And they played a wide range of stuff, including like Coil and, and stuff like that. They would actually play that. Um, and I... I just, I was always there. I was always going to different clubs in the area, but I preferred to go to a lot of the quote unquote underground clubs. And um, there was a club called Therapy that would open at midnight and would stay open until seven in the morning. And there was a certain night they would play some, you know, like industrial music and stuff like that. Even Sleep Chamber played there one time. (laughs) And, uh, so I I started to get into um, other styles through going to the clubs as a teenager, and um, so it, it that's where I was I was really drawn to it. And when I actually started to get more involved in the into noise, um, the imagery sometimes it kind of stood out to me because it, you know, I was a huge horror film fan. Uh, I had been going to horror films since I think my first horror film was Phantasm. And I think that was 78, 79, something like that. Um, And I was, I was really young. I was like five years old when I went, my mom took me to them. Um, She loves horror films as well. So, um, so that was always something that was a part of it. And I always loved the music in the horror films. So I was always drawn to that music. And I would actually record some of that music. I would take the old tape recorder and put it up against the TV and record the music for the uh, from the horror films. And I would just 
put them together, like collage them together and just listen to that over and over because I always loved the music. Um, and that was when you were young, like when you were, yeah, I was, I was really young. Um, I was like nine, 10 years old when I was doing that. Um, but I was, I've always been drawn to music. So you would, you had gotten into music and had already gravitated towards underground music, you know, pretty early on as a teenager. Uh, had you made music prior to that? Like, were you a, like a traditional musician before no. that at all? Okay. No, not at all. I, I don't know how to play an instrument okay. at all. Um, and that was, um, I guess in a way I was more attracted to what someone could do with an instrument, not so much, Oh, they know how to play guitar. They know how to play drums. They know how to play you know, piano or something. It was more of artists that could take an instrument and do something completely different with it or take it and extend what it can do or its natural use, you know. Um, I was always attracted to that. And right. so when I would hear stuff like, oh, my God, this is this is a, an actual guitar being used, it was always interesting that someone could do other things with it other than what you expect from it. And so I was attracted to that, even though, again, I I had no training whatsoever in any instrument. Um, And I, but I knew other people who were trained and actually went to school for it, but they were also doing experimental music or noise. And, you know, it was just, just another part of, what they were interested in doing. And I was always, I sort of like gravitate to that, you know, it was, um, because in school I was considered a weirdo, you know, I right. was this goth kid, you know, who people always <laughs> sort of tormented me in school. Right. Um, I was, I came out early in school, so I was treated very poorly in school. Right. So I just had my group of friends, you know, I was with the small clique of goth and punk kids um, who I hung out with for a while. And then that kind of ended too, sadly. Right. But, so, so you came out early on? like? Yeah, like, I actually came out when I was around 14. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so around the time you were discovering. Yeah. yeah. And... Uh, I was actually outed in school when I was a freshman. Um, a friend of mine uh, found out I was involved with a guy in school that was a, a guy that she liked. And I accidentally, and it was an accident that I, I brought up being involved with him. And um, she was disgusted by it. And she told everybody in school about it. And it started to get around school. And when he found out that I had told her, he thought I told her on purpose. And I, I told her, told him it didn't happen that way. Well, that ended my relationship with him. And uh, he kind of threatened me that if I told anybody about it. So, yeah, it was pretty bad. <laughs> and this is not like, today where 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 people are i i i struggle with 
the word, but I guess like it's it's I I never want to say it's easy, you know, because a right. I don't have I don't have this right. experience, but it's probably it, it's it's more it's more in the social consciousness that yeah you know, like sexuality is not a choice, right. and that like you know someone might be coming to these understandings when they're younger, yeah, and so there's a there's a little more acceptance. Well, know? my mom knew. Well, well before I came out to her, um, she actually knew when I was five years old, she, my father told her, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> when he grows up, he's going to be gay. And my mom just said, oh, well, if he is, he is, right. you know, and my dad just, I guess, saw that in me and just, I guess, wanted to prepare my mom. Um, and she was fine with it. My mom had gay friends and she had no issues with it. No one in my family ever had issues with it. When I told my brother, I told my brothers when I was around 15 and they didn't have any problems with it at all. So I've, I've, I've had a great family. Like even aunts and uncles have been great about it. You know, they've known since I was a teenager and never had issues with it. Um, but being into noise, you know, yeah, there's there've been some issues with people have sure that have had issues with me because of that. So, you know, especially for for you at that time, you were I hesitate to use the word fringe because that can be kind of insulting, but you were your identity was already on the outside of the the the, the standard or the right. norm. Do you think that you were moved towards underground music? in in any way because of that or just was that just well i think i found when i started to go into these clubs i found that i was around other people that accepted me for who i was and there were also people who were exactly like me so um so that was comforting sure you know and um and i felt more at home when I would go to these places, because again, I was around people who were not bothered by me and others who were like me. And even some of the gay leather bars, they were playing, you know, you could go in Houston, there was a leather bar that was playing industrial music at that time. I mean, you weren't going in there and hearing share or right, something right. like that. You would go in there and you're probably going to hear like frontline assembly or, a split second or bands like that, you know, it, you know, a lot of wax tracks yeah, records yeah. type bands. Um, and that's, that was great. I mean, I was happy there, you know, and, uh, and then getting more into the experimental scene, which, you know, I usually use that as a umbrella of all sorts of things like noise and sort of drone and, you know, um, that kind of, um, group of friends that I had at the time, um, they were, most of them were very accepting of me. And, uh, I was, I was sort of the new kid on the block, if you will, (laughs) because a lot of the people in the Houston scene were older than I was. And cause I was a teenager when I started and, um, I would go see some of the local bands play and, um, I was one of the youngest people there and um, I think some of them didn't think I would last 
and I think I've outlasted all of them. <laughs> right. right. Uh, but they were they were friends. They were nice. They welcomed me, and um, and a lot of them I'm still friends with, and I still work with some of them that I met when I first started. So there was a pre-existing experimental scene, even. Oh yes, even in Houston. When, yes, when you were there. Yeah. Did you start recording before you started playing live or? Yes. Okay. Yes. I, um, my first recording was at the end of 89. Okay. Cause I remember doing it around Halloween and, um, but it didn't come out until 90 is when I actually put it out. And, um, I just, I took it around to the local stores and just to see if I could just have some of them there to sell. And, you know, um, there were two record stores in Houston, Vinyl Edge and Sound Exchange, that just totally embraced what I was doing. And um, so they started carrying my work at that time. And my first live show was a year after that. And I I played like at, it was like a civic center in this small town on the outskirts of Houston. And it was a Halloween show. And... Um, I played with bands that were just like post-punk type bands or, you know, indie bands or whatever. Um, we were the only experimental band performing at that show, but everybody was really cool with it. And, it, you know, that was my first time doing a show. And then I, then after that, I started doing more shows in Houston where uh, I was playing with other experimental bands. Uh, some of them that had been around for years before, I started. So, um, I mean, I, I have friends who have been doing it since the early eighties. Wow. So, you know, I'm definitely not one of the first ones in Houston. Right. You know, um, it had been going on and I was a fan of, of a lot of those bands. Uh, I think there was a band called pleasure center that actually really gave me a chance to, um, show people what I was doing. I was on a compilation that they put out. Um, and then there was another local band, Terminal in the Toy Box, that actually uh, gave me a chance to open up for one of their shows. And I became really good friends with them. And um, and one of the members, Austin, is in Black of the Jesus. And he's been in the band for quite a few years now. So, Wow. With that first recording... What what was that like? Because this this interests me a lot because I too have no other musical background. You know, I just yeah. I I sang in a couple hardcore bands and then I did this and and going in I had no idea what to do. I I actually I have a friend Stan Simon who I I hope is listening because I love him, but he's a he's a wizard of of music in general and he he fixes guitars yeah. as a side job and. And I legit just, I took them uh, a Grey Wolves recording and I was like, how do you think they did this? And he kind of like turned it over and made some educated guesses. And he's like, you might need this. You might need this. I think yeah. I can build you this. And so he ended up, uh, he ended up going online and like looking at a live performance of someone and saw that they were using contact mics. And so he built my first contact mics and oh, he, he like yeah. taught me how to use pedals what little i know i know from him so yeah you know i had that person that that 
that just I got lucky. Like if I if I needed to figure that on my own, I would have had no no idea yeah. how to enter that 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 forum. Well, the first recordings, um, I used like television sets. I would just uh, have them on a static channel and uh, radios have that on a static channel, just dead air. Um, and I just, you know, I would just have them playing at the same time in a room. And I had an old 70s turntable tape player that my that was my grandmother's um that i used to record and um i i use that as well because the turntable when you would put it on the setting of the turntable and you would mess with the actual turntable itself it gave a weird like metal sound and then when you would twist it a little bit, it would give like a creaking sound. And so I, I utilized that a lot in my early recordings. And um, one of another early recording that I did, it was just I turned on the television set. I had two radios on and I just let it record. And so the whole thing was just static noise. And it was a I, it was a project that did only one release. It was called Serpent Orange silly name there's a (laughs) long story behind that name but anyways but i i did that and it was just static and that's all it was um and but the black leather jesus stuff it was mainly that turntable and television set and radio (laughs) and i just blasted it really loud and recorded it you recorded like a room mic or no it was going straight into the into the stereo. Oh, oh, okay. Because okay. the stereo had for like, you know, input output. Right. Like it had all that. It was yeah. old. Yeah. And um, so I hooked it up to that and record straight onto the tape deck that was in the stereo. And then did you just proceed to copy the tape from there? And yeah. Then did the artwork yeah. Xerox? And- yeah. Well, I was in, in high school and I, I worked for the newspaper and yearbook in high school. So I was able to go in and and take clip art and and print out the the lettering and everything at school, and I was able to Xerox it there. And so I just started doing it at school, and uh, so I yeah I just did stuff myself, and I would hand it out to people, friends, um, and then like I said, the local record stores started carrying them. Um, and then at shows, when I started doing shows, I just, I handed them out at shows. I didn't sell them at shows. I just gave them to people. Sure. So that's just kind of how it started. From an early age, you had a fascination with horror movies. Yeah. And that obviously shows throughout all of your work. And then, uh, when you're an early, in your early teens, you, you get into underground music. Did you have anything else that you were really like interested in that like influence, like influence, like informed your art, I guess is the, the, the question I'm going to ask. Well, I was also, I, I painted a lot as well. And so I was into a lot of abstract expressionism and I liked a lot of some of those artists. I was, you know, a huge fan of like Hans Hoffman and Mark Rothko 
uh, Franz Klein, stuff, artists like that. And so that I, I think had a little bit to do with it as well. And some of the art that I used, it wasn't always pornographic stuff, you know? <laughs> um, so there were certain art um, influence what I did. And I also, I mean, cause some of those artists, you know, to some people like, Oh, I can do that. You know, anyone can do that. Why is that art? You know, but you know, that's just the ignorance a lot of people have about what people do right. and think they can do it as well, but they don't. Yeah. Um, so I, I just always been interested in things that I felt were, I guess, outside the box. Sure. So, um, and I always dressed that way too. I used to do my own clothes <laughs> as well when I was a kid. Okay. Um, and I, I did stuff for friends as well, you know, and that goes into how I got into fashion. Right. So, um, but I've, I've always been influenced by not just music or film, but art as well. So there were like some other experimental bands and acts like in, in your, in your, in Houston, by the time you, by the time you got involved, were you aware? I know you said you been exposed to the haters yeah were you aware of anyone doing uh you know the more abrasive noise well after um artists like Mersbau, like i i got into that shortly after i mean it was you know i would go to the for example sound exchange i would go to their store and you know they had a, a an experimental section and uh i remember they had a like a, a case by the counter where they had a lot of the, the specially packaged releases in the, in the case. And they had some, um, some stuff from like chop shop and smell and quim. And, uh, so I, I started buying some of those cause I love the way they were packaged. Right. And, um, so I started hearing early on some of those other artists like that. And it was just, Sometimes they would recommend somebody, if you like this, why don't you check this out? And so it just kind of went with either I just decided to try it on my own because I liked the way things were packaged. And and I would ask them, is this in the vein of, of this artist or whatever? And they're like, sure, you would like it. And so, um, but I, I think uh, New Blockaders were another early uh, band that, you know, I really liked as well. Um and were an influence in what I do. I, I think the haters is probably the biggest influence in what I do. Sure. So were you playing solo? No. Before or? Um, no, the, the, the actual first black leather Jesus release, uh, it was myself, uh, Barbara and Angela who were friends of mine, uh, that I used to go to some of these clubs with. And, um, they were messing around with doing, taking stuff from films and collaging them together. And they were just messing around with stuff. And, um, they showed it to me one, one night and I liked it. And I said, do you want to do something together? And I said, well, I was doing this project called Black Leather Jesus. And, you know, I think this would be kind of cool if I add harsh noise over what you guys are doing. 
And so we did a, a couple of recordings and those recordings, I don't, I don't know whatever happened to them. Um, but what I had left was my part of it. So the first Black Leather Jesus tape, which is called Liar by Wound, um, is only my half of what we actually did together because I had done the noise and they did the, the collage sounds. And, but I don't know what happened to that master that we had. I think they might've kept it because <laughs> we had a fallen out, but I mm. think they might've kept it. Um, so the original recording of that doesn't exist anymore. Wow. Okay. So it only has what I did. Right. Um, and then we, we did a couple other releases together. Uh, this all happened in a year period. Okay. Um, and you were still in high school. Yeah. Wow. And then, um, they, they left our friendship ended. Um, and again, it, it had to do with my sexuality. <laughs> um, so that ended and, um, my high school best friend, her name was Randy. And so I started working with her in Black Leather Jesus and my friend Scott, who I also went to school with. He was older. He was a year older than I was. And Randy was my age. And so they came into Black Leather Jesus on the fourth release. And, but that was 92. So that wasn't that long after. Right. Um, and I started working with them. And I, you know, Randy's parents were always out of town. They were truck drivers, so they were always gone. So we used to record at her house. And um, then Randy and Scott got involved, and they ended up getting married. And um, my friendship with Randy ended. Um, it, it was just over a silly fight. It was over something really silly, but she held the grudge against me over this fight and I never talked to her again. And she passed away. Um, it would, I don't exactly remember what year it was. She passed away. Um, Cause I actually didn't know she had passed away until quite some time after she had passed. And, uh, but then Scott and I started talking again, and he actually rejoined Black Leather Jesus um, sometime later, and then he left again um, over just he had his own issues going on and things that he was dealing with at home, and so he just couldn't, you know, find time to record with us anymore. Uh, but we did become friends again, and. Um, and I, I felt um, sad that Randy and I never made up because it was over something so stupid. And, um, and she was my best friend. We, I had been friends with her since 86. And, um, and it was just sad that, you know, that's how it ended. Right. Yeah. So, but I actually met her son. Oh, wow. I met him 
probably, I believe it was uh, in 2009, I met him. Uh, Scott wanted me to meet him. And uh, her son is gay. And um, Scott just thought maybe I could talk to him and give him some advice. And, you know, and I, and I did talk to him. And, um, and sometimes, a couple of times, Sean and I saw him at some of the gay pride parades in Houston and he would come up to us and say hello. And, um, so it was nice to, to meet him and he, he looked like her. How long were you playing, recording, putting out releases before, you, you know, you say you were like passing them out locally. You had a couple stores that were supportive, but yeah. how long before you connected with other people that were doing noise and realized that there was like more of a, a global, scene for lack of word that you could like plug yourself into and like well usually with the recordings i would get um i would look at the labels as they were on and i would sometimes contact the labels to get catalogs and things like that and uh ron uh ron lassard <laughs> it was a huge uh person that i contacted uh about that and um so i was always getting catalogs and, and discovering bands that way. And then I started just contacted bands after that and uh, just wanted to work with some of them. And I was always intimidated to, to contact some of the artists like GX from the haters. I was, it took me a long time to contact him because I just thought, Oh, he, he wouldn't work with me. Right. So I just thought, no, I'm not, I'm not going to contact him right now. So I, I think I waited a long, long time before I contacted him. Koji from MSBR was one of the first people that I actually worked with. He had only a couple of releases out when I started uh, working with him. And obviously, Mersbau was the other one that I contacted early on. And uh, I had sent him some of my tapes to, to check out, and he agreed to to work with me. And we collaborated on a record together. We did a split. Um and one of the other early ones, uh, Condom, was uh, Mike was an, an early one as well. I, I uh, did a lot of Condom releases. Uh, Source, he used a lot of my sources on uh, quite a bit of his releases as well. Um, and Smell and Quim was another early one that I contacted and, and worked with. Um, and I just started, I, yeah, I just started contacting people. I contacted Macronympha. By that time, I was already in contact with Taint, and uh, we had worked together. Uh, he was in Texas as well. And I, it took a long time for me to meet him. He wasn't very social. He really didn't do live shows. Um, it, it took a while for him to do stuff. And uh, he played at a couple of fests that I put together, and he played at them. But I, some of the people in Houston that I was networking with, I started meeting other people, like with David Gilden. I started, that's how I kind of started talking with uh, Macronympha. And because he had been in contact with Macronympha before. So when I met David, I started contacting Macronympha as well. And then it just kind of went from there. He knew other artists and he introduced me to some people and, vice versa, you know, it kind of worked together that way. And it just kind of started from there. And 
he was also in Black Other Jesus for a time. Yeah, he had, we he had uh, another project with um. I first met David in '93, and he came out to one of our shows. We were doing a noise fest, and he came out to the noise fest. And I, the first time I think he came out to the noise fest was in '92, but I don't think I met him that time. And then in '93, he asked to be a part of the noise fest, so he was a, he performed solo at that festival, and. Um, then I started working with him uh, as slave labor. Uh, we did a show in Houston at this really small venue called Hoy Poloi. It was like a bedroom size. And we did our first slave labor show there. And um, then we did slave labor at another of the noise fest in Houston. So I just, I started working with him on that. And then he, uh, we did a, another project called Lingla. I would go over his house. Most of the time I went over to his house to record. And uh, so we did that project. Most of that we recorded together at his house. Most of the Black Leather Jesus recordings, he would come over to either Scott's house or one of the other band members at the time, like uh, Ryan or Rick. We would go to one of their places and, and record, and he would just come over. So a lot of the early Black Leather Jesus recordings, I mean, it was we we got together a lot. I mean, later on, it, it turned into, you know, occasionally they would give me source and I would mix the source with my source or whatever. Even though we all lived in, in the same city, Houston's a huge city. And right. so sometimes it's not easy to get to them or, or make the time for everybody to get together. But a lot of those early recordings were all of us together. Um it didn't always go well. <laughs> there were sometimes fights at some of these uh, recordings. I think sometimes the, the arguments had to do with someone wanted to do something more harsh and someone wanted to add more electronic sounds that were almost rhythmic. And I'm not really into that. Um, David wasn't into that. So David was very outspoken about, we're not going to do that. <laughs> I don't want to do that. And and some of the other artists were wanting to add another dimension to the band, I guess. Um, and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And I think during the period after Randy and Scott left, Black Other Jesus, um, which was in 94. Um, that was one of our last shows uh, together with David. After they left, David and I continued to do it. And Kevin Ogg came into it around 95. And I also started working with Ryan, Rick, Herman, and Josh. But it was not all of us at the same time. Sometimes it was two or three of us at a time. Occasionally, we were all together. I think Kevin was... Kevin Ogg was definitely somebody who didn't really get along with everybody. He and David clashed a lot. So, um, and at the time I was dating Kevin. So there was definitely that issue that was going on as well. I mean, I, I, I guess he knew my history with David. So that kind of bothered him a bit. 
and David definitely wasn't comfortable with working with him. But we got some recording done, and then uh, there was a there was a couple of recordings where it was just Kevin and I. And uh, initially, we were going to release it just as Fetus Furs because that was his project. You know, that was him. It was not me. I just appeared in some of the releases, but he had been doing that years before I was ever involved. And because again, he he wasn't originally from Texas; he was originally from Michigan. Then he ended up leaving. Uh, and moved back home and he passed away in 96. Right. And at that time I was, I was still working with David and the rest of the guys, we, we worked together for a couple more years and then that was it for that lineup. You know, David just disappeared and uh, never heard from him again. It's, it's fascinating. I'm, sure i'm not the only person listening to this is not fascinating because uh especially for some some of us who are you know newer or, or younger it, david gilden's like a uh folklore and yeah. you know it's like you know we yeah we know like the recorded output that we have access yeah. to and it's like you know even even then i mean uh, a friend of mine gave me a bootleg copy of sawgasm and it was like, here's, oh, yeah. here's Sawgasm. And it was like, oh my God, I get to listen to this. And, and it's so funny. Cause like you're, you're speaking <laughs> candidly about someone who you're, you're more like, you're kind of humanizing someone that, uh, otherwise like, uh, mythologized. Well, uh, and speaking of Sawgasm, um, he did that project with two other guys. Uh, I don't remember. I actually only met them once. Um, but they did one performance that I, I remember being at. Um, actually, I think I have a flyer of that performance. Oh, wow. Because um, I have a, a notebook of some of my old <clears throat> ads from shows and stuff. And there's I think there's one with Sargasm in there. I, I never met the other guys that were in Sargasm. Uh, so that definitely wasn't just David by himself. Okay. There were, okay. There were two other guys involved in that. Um, and David was... You know, a lot of people that were in the experimental noise scene in the 90s, they definitely know David. They knew him. Um, we had a chat about this on tour when we were doing the tour with Hiroshi. Uh, Greg from Dada Drummond had brought up about David and um, and how some people didn't believe he existed, but he was a real person. Um, and so I... at the first show that we did on the tour, I took Greg to Domico's and Austin and Carol and even Kevin Novak. Um, they all knew David and then Domico's was friends with him. And, uh, but he definitely was troubled. He, he had some addiction problems and he was not easy to work with at all. I mean, he's a great artist. And yes, when people say that his certain releases from him are like masterpieces, yes, they are. I I give him credit for that. He's He was a great artist. But he just, apparently he had a lot of demons that he was dealing with. And I I did try to help him. I was there several times when he was going through some things. And it was it was tough because he... You know, he, his family, well, his mom and dad didn't know how to deal with him. And I actually talked to his mom a few times 
um, when she didn't know what to do. And I, I would try to talk to him about it. And most of the times he just didn't want to hear anything about it. He didn't want to be told anything. And, um, right before we stopped talking, he, he called me and he said he was trying to get help. And that was the last time I talked to him and I never talked to him again. And I didn't even know he had passed until someone had sent me a link to an obituary of it. And someone had posted about it on one of the noise boards. And I didn't even know he, he was, I mean, he, yeah, he's become very mysterious to people, but he was a real person and there's a lot of people who know about him and there's actually a video of him uh, in our Black Leather Jesus performance. The There was uh, Old Europa Cafe put out um, Macrocephalus Compost 2 video compilation. And the Black Leather Jesus performance on there, he's on. He's he's the guy playing guitar with a cap in the background. That's that's David. The other two are Randy and, and Scott. And... Um, and I'm on. I'm the one on the floor playing the sheet metal. <laughs> so he was, he was real. But he, um, he re- he he did record a lot. Actually, he recorded hours and hours of stuff. I know there were times when I went to record with him, and we would record straight for like three or four hours. Wow. I I have some of those recordings that have never been released. I just I, I did release one of them that I was involved with, one of the Lingula releases. Um I've been asked a lot about them, but um yeah, I don't know. <laughs> this is it I, I just want to point out that we are six or seven years into your history, which is yeah. <laughs> which is the mid nineties, yeah. and you've already had three friends pass in that short period of time. Was that well, actually, there was another. Um, Donna Meekly was another uh, Black Little Jesus member that passed away. She was only on a couple of releases, but um, she was it was uh, she was killed in a car accident, uh, drinking and driving. She was a performance artist in Houston, so she mainly did contemporary dance things like that, and she did occasionally do some experimental music. And I. Um, I invited her to record with us one time because she was dating one of the guys in one of the other bands that we did a show with. She did this performance where she just had microphones on her body and it was just feedback. And the whole time she was doing a dance and I thought that was really cool. And I asked her if she would record with us and she did. I didn't know her that long. And so she was killed in a car accident not long after I met her. So it was just, she was only on a couple of releases and I actually did a release with her yeah, that was very. That was a short period. With David, um, again, I, I, I never knew what happened to him afterwards. I never, I never heard from him. The last time I had heard anything about him was that he had moved to California. He was doing some kind of like black metal or something. I wasn't sure. And I think at that point, everything became whether it was a rumor or something. I, I don't know. Right, right. Um, but yeah, I had my share of people asking is, was he for real? You know, it's like, yeah, I mean, there's people you can ask that, that knew him. And again, there's video proof, right? right you know, right. that he existed, but I am glad to see that, that there are people who, 
are still interested in what he did. And I believe there are people who are doing reissues of some of his work. And I think that's great because I mean, it's, it's great stuff. And I think people should revisit a lot of that. I think it's great that they're discovering him or rediscovering. (laughs) So he passed away later on and, and you found out about Randy passed away later, later on as well. Yeah. So it was really two people and that, time period that you knew of that had that had passed yeah was that i mean that's even you know in in, at any age in any situation having people that we're friends with or loved ones pass is always difficult and you i mean you you recorded memorial for kevin um did you um you know did, did having that 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 much death so so early like so and and like that period of time was that did that weigh on you did that did that inform like what you were doing or i mean obviously it informed memorial but well with kevin um i actually there's a a a, one of the tracks has a little snippet from a one of those call-in radio shows where you call in about your problems and Mm -hmm. he was so obsessed with those kind of shows. And so sometimes we would listen to them when I was at his apartment, we would just listen to these call in radio shows. So when I did Memorial, I actually used a snippet from one of those shows Mm -hmm. and it was sort of my little uh, dedication to him, you know? Um, And I think that, um with him he was sick um he started to get sick and i i i was there for him i mean a lot of people know he passed away from complications of aids um and i knew before we got involved that he was hiv positive and um but he, when he started to get sick, he didn't want me to be around when he wasn't feeling well, even though I was willing to be there whenever he needed me. But he kept pushing me away. And that really hurt because I wanted to be there for him. And he wanted me to move with him back home to Michigan. And he had asked me if I would... uh move with him. And I said, I I would. And so he said that he was moving back home. He was going to get a place. And when the place was ready, he would bring me up there and we would live together up in Michigan. And he left. And I didn't hear from him after the holidays. And I became worried. And again, I mean, this there was no internet, you know, right. it was just, and I tried calling the phone number I had, um, didn't, uh, hear anything. And, uh, I had a number to his aunt who lived in Texas. And, um, when I called her, um, I left a message on her voicemail and, or her machine at the time. Right. She called me back. Um, 
probably a month later and said he had passed away and that he had a, a box that he had left with her for me. And so I had my friend take me over there to go pick up the box and it was a video recording and he was telling me how much I meant to him and a lot of other personal stuff and left me a lot of his master recordings and told me to do whatever I like with them. And uh, some of the recordings that I did with him that we never got around to releasing. And that was it. And I, it, it took me a long time to get over that because I, I felt like um, I never had a chance to say goodbye to him. Sure. And he knew that he was sick. Right. And I just wish he had given me that chance to just say goodbye to him. Right. And um, so that was a really tough time for me. And not long after he passed, I think I was having a tough time in Black Other Jesus. I think I, um, I fought a lot with the other band members. And I think a lot of it had to do with remembering how some of them didn't get along with him and how David and he didn't get along that well. And so being hurt by that and being hurt by the fighting, I think um, it just kind of got explosive after a Black Leather Jesus show and I threw everybody out of the band at, after one show. And I was just, at the time, I was just done with it. I And I actually thought I was going to stop doing Black Leather Jesus at that time. But then I met Kevin Novak, TEF, and he and I became friends. And um, and I started working with him in Black Leather Jesus. And it just kind of went from there. But it was tough for a while. And then, um, you know, when I found out about Randy, uh, that again, it just everything came back again because I felt like I never made up with her. I never had that moment to just reconcile what happened over something so silly. And it, it was just something that had always bothered me. Even with David, I mean, I wish that, you know, we could have settled some things that some issues we had with each other. I think that there were a lot more like personal things between us that we never really settled. And I think that's something that I never got over because I, I really felt like I, I really tried to help him. And I felt like I there was nothing I can do. And I just wish that at some point he would have contacted me at least to let me know how he was doing. He, he never did. And with Kevin Og, um, the thing that really bothered me was that there was rumors that I was HIV positive because that I lost him right. because of that. And which is not true. 
like I said, I, I knew about it beforehand. And um, so it, it it's silly that even in this small community that there would even be like that kind of rumor. And it's still something that occasionally someone will make a comment about it. And it just brings up more BS, you know. A lot of times I usually tell people, if you really want to know the truth about something, just ask me and I'll tell you the truth. Don't go by what people write on the noise boards or rumors because um, some of the stuff is started by people that I just had a falling out with. Right. And they just go off on stuff. And it, and sometimes they never let it go. We, I think that's a sadly like a, a running theme in noise is the petty, some of the petty beefs we all yeah get caught up in that sort of segues into a, 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 a I guess a, a point that I wanted to, to touch on is, you know, you were, you were already out and, and com- comfortable in your sexuality. Yeah. Uh, in the late eighties going into the early nineties and the experimental music scene. Uh, you know, obviously I was 10, so I didn't really know what was going on, but <laughs> you know, even, uh, you know, I mean, it's still, it's, it's, it's to this day, there's still work to be done as far as yeah. acceptance and awareness, especially around, you know, queer issues and stuff. But what was that like for you as an, as a, as a, as a noise artist? Like, like you just said, like you're, yeah. you know, someone that was close to you passed away from, from age, uh, from AIDS. And like the next thing you know, there's a, there's a rumor about you. Because yeah. of, of course that, you know, like pe- yeah. people are making, I mean, frankly, like in my opinion, like homophobic assumptions right? based off of like one piece of information and like. Early on, um, when I came out, I guess in the noise scene, because, you know, I started just using like really gay pornographic images and that was a reaction to constantly seeing, you know, big tits on album <laughs> covers and, you know. Yeah. Um, and some of those like famous porn stars, female porn stars. And so I thought, well, I want to have something that I like, you yeah. know? So I started putting naked men on the cover and, and I thought, well, I, I can't be the only one. I mean, come on. So, um, I started doing that. I, I didn't do that initially, but then when I started to do it, I, I got some hate mail at first it was silly. And then, uh, later on it, it, it got a little more intense. I got death threats from people and still it continues. I mean, I still occasionally get hate, hate mail. I mean, I, uh, one of the last times we went to Europe for tour before we went on tour, um, I got an email from someone who said that we wouldn't make it out of France alive. So it, it, it it still happens. I dismiss it a lot of times. And to me, a lot of it's just, I usually look at it as if, if you're spending your time trying to tell me how wrong I am for being who I am, then you're probably not comfortable with who you are. Sure. And a lot of times the, the homophobia is that it's self-loathing, you know, it's someone who can't deal with their own sexuality. Right. I just, I still get it. And even some of the band members in Black Leather Jesus, like some of them, when they joined Black Leather Jesus, got hate mail because they had joined 
and they joined what they called a fag band. So some of the members, it actually kind of hurt them a little bit, you know, but the band members have been very supportive being involved in it and working with me. And I just think it's silly. I mean, it's, it's, if you don't want, you know, to, to deal with me because of who I am, that that's your ignorance, you know? Sure. And I don't have time for that, but I still get that. I still get homophobic comments. And I've, I've even had someone write me and said, I really liked what you were doing in the early nineties until you started using all that gay shit on your, on your album covers. And then I stopped listening to you. I thought, okay, well, I don't stop listening to somebody because they have a naked girl on the cover. Right. right. <laughs> it's like, if I like it, I like it. Yeah. Well, just just knowing that experience for you gives me another level of appreciation for you as an artist because a lot of us don't have to deal with that. No one is messaging me about how much they hate m- me based off of the way I was born, you know. Right. Uh, I've had you know, I've I've heard racist comments about Mexican people because they, people didn't realize I was Mexican, but like right. I've never had someone directly go like that guy fuck that guy hope he dies. Uh yeah at least not for, you know, anything that I, that, that I can't change about myself. There's plenty of people out there that hate me because I don't eat animals yeah. or, or drink or because I right. talk shit on the internet about something. But, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like that's, you know, just had, being able to have that resiliency speaks, speaks a lot to, to you as a human being. You record under, you recorded under your name and as Black yeah. Lord Jesus in the beginning. Um, yeah. I think if we were to go through a list of all the names you record under, <laughs> that ridiculous. would be a whole episode of the podcast, which maybe I'll do that as a bonus episode. I'll just, I'll just go through the whole list, but you know, uh, I, I do want to touch on a, a couple of the projects just out yeah. of mostly selfish reasons, but you know, there's Werewolf Jerusalem and crashed every speed and yeah. Good Lord. A lot, a lot yeah. more. Those to I, me, like when I think, when I, when I think of the, the four, I think of when I think of you is your name, black color, Jesus, Werewolf Jerusalem and Crash Every Speed, which is like my, I think I've told you before, that's like my, like my <laughs> one that I like the most just because of the, the high end is where I love to feel tortured. Yeah. I guess, I guess the question is like, what, why all of the projects, why all, why all the projects, what, what, <laughs> what's the motivation behind, you know, like for me, I have a few project names and, and you know, credit where credit's due. I probably wouldn't have thought to like, oh, I can name things differently if i hadn't seen you have different and like i said there's a lot that that are have like pretty clear delineations you know um you know but sometimes when i record i'll go back and listen to something i'm like that doesn't fit what i was thinking and then i have to start a new project with that that so so yeah i would like to know what how that works for you first off the reason for the number of different projects has to do with i just like the idea of starting something new and seeing where it goes and what I can do with a new project. I, I, I'd rather do that and have a lot of different projects versus all on under one name and have like 800 releases. Sure. Cause I probably already do with <laughs> under my own name and black of the Jesus. But I like the fact of just starting fresh with something new and seeing where it goes. And sometimes they involve other people. Most of the time, they don't. But I've collaborated with 
many different people for different projects. And a lot of times the idea to come up with a different project name is theirs, not Mm. mine. And so, and I'm fine with it. And I just, but it's mainly because sometimes, yes, a certain project has a certain theme. And I tend to just try to stick with that, with that project. But yes, there are several projects that maybe have a similar theme, but it is, again, it goes back to wanting to start something new under a different name and just seeing where I can take that and where, you know, how I can develop that project. And sometimes there are projects that I've done only once and will never do again. Sure. Then there are projects that I have done and stopped and people want more from that project and I won't go back to it. Then again, there's some that I haven't done in many years and have been asked to do some of those projects again and I'm reconsidering. Okay. Um, one of them being autopsy experiment uh, was a project that I did in the mid nineties, the early to mid nineties. And someone said they really liked the project and they had asked if I would, if I was going to ever do it again. And I said, probably not. Um, not for any particular reason, but it, it just, it was a time, you know, and, but they said they would like to see it again, you know, and I just, no, maybe. And then someone else contacted me about that maybe a year later and the same thing, like you should do this project again. And um, so I've, I've reconsidered it. I'm actually going to record something new for that project. So we'll see what happens. But um, usually they just follow a theme, not always, but sometimes. And I like working with different people. So sometimes there are different projects involve different people. A lot of times, the main thing that I've heard the criticism is quality over quantity. But my view on that is quality is a matter of opinion. Because what one may think, oh, this is great. Someone else may think it's shit. Sure. So, Especially with noise. <laughs> right. So I don't release stuff I don't like. You know, I do re-listen to what I do, and sometimes it's scrapped. And I was like, no, I don't like the way this turned out, so erase. This is done. So I don't release everything that I record. Um, that is a terrifying thought. <laughs> that is. <laughs> so I I don't, but I, I just enjoy doing it. I enjoy what I do, and I've been doing it a long time. and And again... There's a lot of criticism about it, and it's okay. I mean, it, if it's not for everyone, and if people don't like what I do, I'm I'm okay with that. I don't like everything other people do. I have my favorites, and I, you know, I always think there's a lot of new artists that are coming out that are doing some great work. But there's some artists that have been around for many, many years that I just never got into. It's just a matter of taste, and it, it and it's okay. I think I'm more bothered if someone dislikes me because I'm gay, versus sure. 
they just don't like what I do. I mean, if you don't like what I do, that's understandable. I mean, right. It's okay. Yeah. Because yeah. I actually have heard someone say they've never heard me do anything worth listening to. And when I heard that, I was like, well, that's okay. <laughs> someone else is listening to it. So right. yeah. I'm plenty. I'm not bothered by that. I'm not bothered by the criticism, the bad reviews that sometimes get. I mean, everyone gets bad reviews. Um, but I, like I said, I, en- I enjoy what I do. Yeah. And, uh, a lot of people have come and have come and gone and I'm still here doing it. Yeah. You know? So I'm happy with it. <laughs> Good. You, sh- you should be. So, so yeah, like, you know, you have this multitude of projects and, and you, you said you like you kind of like you like to start a new thing, and if it goes somewhere, it goes yeah. somewhere. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, you know, I, I, I like I said like before, like I think there's a few that have have obviously went somewhere, and in, in just in terms of like the number of releases, and right. those would be like Werewolf Jerusalem, Crash Every Speed, and I'm just gonna keep saying that one until it, 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 yeah. it like I'm just trying to get people to keep hearing it, and eventually like someone will be like. Uh, and then I would say Falk as well. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, Falk. I should know because I really like cryptozoology, but, uh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, and I, and I think that, you know, you, you had a couple that like you wanted to expand upon too. So we can, right. we could start with whichever ones started earliest, you know, I guess that would that be werewolf or. Well, one of the earliest of those projects, uh, would be last rape. Um, last rape, I, I it started as a project that I did with Naoki from Forced Orgasm. I met him early on. Uh, he was working at a space in Houston called Diverse Works. He went to school in Houston. He was a foreign exchange student from Japan. Wow! And so he was in Houston, and he ended up staying in, in Houston for a while. And he worked at Diverse Works in the mid-90s. When I so- first saw him perform, it was very dense. You know, it was, it was wall noise, but it was, it wasn't just, okay, press go and I'm standing here and it's just doing its thing. I mean, he was, he was doing things, you know, he was either, some of it was guitar noise and it was just the constant scraping of it It just created like this really dense. And I think he used like delay pedals and stuff and it just kept creating this wall of noise stuff. I saw him perform at this place called Harvey's and I asked to work with him. So we started working together. And I remember uh, one of the first times I hung out with him, uh, we watched I Spit on Your Grave. I really liked the the film. It was more of the, I, the whole rape revenge type films. I know they're, they're pretty harsh and, you know, some people don't like those kinds of films. That's sort of the idea behind Last Rape. It was more of women saying, I'm not going to be this victim, you know, and to get back at those that have attacked them and to get revenge on them. I was fascinated by those films because I thought there should be more films like this, you know, don't let them get away with it. You know, let's see them fight back. So that's where the name Last Rape came from. It had to do with, I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm not going to let you do this to me. And I'm not going to stand by and let it happen. Or I'm going to get back at 
you for what you did to me. Some people don't like the name, and I understand why they don't like the name. But it's also something, some it's personal to me as well, because that actually happened to me when I was eight years old. Oh, wow. So it's something that happened to me, and I actually got back at that person. When, I, when that happened, I felt relieved that I was able to not let them get away with it. Sure. So it, it, it so it's something that it, it I, I know personally, I mean, I've dealt with it personally, but I, I do understand that sometimes using that word is really difficult for people to deal with in, in terms of uh, having it as a project name. And I understand that. And I understand that some people just think that it's sometimes used for shock value. And I think some people do use it for shock value. But for me, it, it's it's a whole nother story. And so I found that that was something that some people just don't like to listen to because of the name. And like I said, I understand, but there's definitely meaning behind it. And um, after Naoki um, was no longer involved in the project, I started doing the project with Sean. Because one of the first Last Rape releases, um, one of Black Other Jesus member, uh, Marianne, was involved in that one of the first last rape releases but she wasn't really involved in the project she was involved in the, when the first recording then i started working with naoki shortly after that and then i started working with sean in the project after naoki dropped out and so sean and i still do the project today i i, I would assume everyone listening knows who sean is but maybe we should oh <laughs> since he plays such an important part in your life maybe we should introduce him as a as a as a as a person in the narr- in the in the narrative Sean Matsis, who is my husband, uh, we were friends long before we were involved. I met him in 2000, and he I started working with him in 2001 in Black Leather Jesus. He and I started working together in various other projects, including like Priest and Shit was another project that he worked with me on. I, I met him seeing his band perform in the Land of Archers. They were performing in Houston, and they were an experimental band. And um, I was impressed with them, and I wanted to work with with Actually, all of them I wanted to work with. And um, so I, I started working with Sean and Vance. Uh, Vance was also part of Black Other Jesus for a while. So that's how that kind of started. Sean and I got involved in a relationship in 2011, we got married four years ago. So um, that's who he is. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I just, yeah. you know, like if if I didn't explain who yeah. Mazur was, people would think that I was talking about Morrissey and not my, my late dog. So, so, yes. So Sean and Sean also has a number of projects of, of his yes. own. And- uh, he, he does the White Horse. He does... Uh, Another one called Shudder of Anguish, which is actually one of my favorites of his. He doesn't do that often. I wish he would. Uh, he does a, a Week of Kindness as well. But I wish he would do more with uh, Shudder of Anguish <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, and then we have other projects together, uh, like Untitled is another project that we do together. And uh, another one that we've been concentrating on recently is Gourmet Shit Scene, <laughs> which... Um, yeah, the name. 
Uh, that's another story. Yeah. So that's that. And actually, speaking of Moz, I, I, some people might remember a noise artist that went by the name Moz. He was actually an ex-boyfriend of mine. Oh. Uh, his real name was James Brand. He passed away. He was from Alaska originally, and he moved near Houston and he started coming out to the Black Leather Jesus shows and stuff like that. He did a project back then called Red Light District, but he used the name Moz as his own name for, for projects. And then he started doing work under the name Moz and, and did several releases. He worked with Thurston Moore. He worked with K.K. Null and, and other artists. He moved back to Alaska after we broke up. He moved back probably a year after we broke up. He passed away. I believe he had a, a a brain aneurysm is what happened. I was not in contact with him, but uh, what I read about it online is what happened with him. Uh, he was he was never involved in Black Leather Jesus, but we were a couple. We we did work on one project together, which was uh, DS, which was uh, we did a one release from this Italian label called Loud, and it was all based on like the whole dominant submission, which is where the name is from. That was the only thing we ever did together. That's just a little side note. Yeah, something. I'd heard I'd I've heard the name brought up before, and I never yeah. knew any anything. But oh, yeah. like I'd always bank it to like research later, and then it just yeah, you know. <laughs> with with most times, anybody talks about noise, you get like four hundred names at once, yeah. and you're like, I'm gonna remember one of those. <laughs> So, so that's awesome information. Like that's good to know. And you know, yeah. I would love to talk about Falk because oh, yeah, yeah. I, I love cryptozoology and in particular Sasquatch. Oh yeah, Bigfoot. I do too. So let's just talk about that. Like, how did that idea come about? Was that yeah? Let's just talk about Falk. <laughs> okay. Well, I remember as a kid, I saw the legend of Boggy Creek. Yeah, Falk is actually uh, near Texas Arkansas border area. Mm-hmm. Texarkana. And I remember I was, it was 91 when I first went to Falk. And I was with my friend Randy. Her sister lived over there, not in Falk, but in a small town outside of, of it. I just remember driving up to, she lived off a dirt road in a small trailer near the creek. And I just remember this huge red sign that said, Welcome to Boggy Creek. Yeah. I just thought, oh my God, this is, you know, I was just like, did you ever see Legend of Boggy Creek? And she was like, no. And I said, do you need to see it? I mean, it's it's great. I was like, I didn't know this is where she lived. So we actually went into Falk because the creek runs all along there down through Dallas, near Dallas and stuff. I remember talking to her sister and I asked her, do you ever hear things? I mean, you know, is, are people afraid of Bigfoot here? And, and she said, well, yeah, you know, people claim they've seen things, have heard things. She's like, I've never seen anything, but I've heard things that I can't explain what these sounds are. And she said that there was one night she heard a lot of commotion going on. She heard cats screeching like something was wrong with them. And then she said the next morning, like part of her fence was like bent down heavy and she didn't know what had done that. And, you know, it was just, you know, things like that. And so I, I was like really fascinated by that. And in Falk, there's a actual um, 
a small little, it's almost like a convenience store. And there's like a, a tiny, like Bigfoot gallery next to it or in, like within the store. So it's just people are obsessed with that subject, but they're obsessed to like just insane, I mean, insane uh, beliefs on, on I, I'm one of those people that I wouldn't doubt something like that would exist because there's so much craziness that exists in this world. And there's even things that, you know, are just being discovered, you know, like in the ocean and stuff, like creatures that people didn't even know existed. Yeah. So there's always things being found. And my thought had, had always been, I don't really think that's a far fetched thing. That's something that looks human, but not quite. And, you know, so it, this fascination just kept growing, but it also had a little bit to do, which not so much connected, but a little bit in my eyes with my fascination with werewolves. Sure. So it was kind of like that fascination with werewolves became a fascination with Bigfoot as well. Yeah. And even where we live now, there's rumors of his existence oh, yeah. in this area. Yeah. I mean, there's people who claim they've seen it, you know, family members that have said they've seen it. So, and in fact, there was a couple months ago, it was in the paper here that someone claimed that they had seen it maybe two miles from where we live. It, it's just one of those things I'm just fascinated by. Again, it became a project that I wanted to be focused on various forms of that creature or other creatures of folklore, you know? Yeah. So that's sort of how Falk came about. I don't do it that often, that project, but, um, you know, it's fun. Yeah. You know, it's a fun subject. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, my most frustrating tape in my collection is a tape that I think, I think Fusty Cunt put it out for you mm-hmm. and it's literally just filled. Oh with yes. With the hair. The hair. Yeah. yeah. Mine's like triple bagged cause I'm like so stressed about the hair getting, out and i'm like so ocd about it i'm like i i want this tape but if it you know the bag within the bag within the bag has to open up before it's going to get all over my precious things thus probably defeating jim's point in packaging it like that but whatever me and me and jim are forever at odds over packaging things (laughs) that's that's awesome like for me to find out and, and, and to know because i've always been fascinated uh, you know, I do believe that there is a a, a creature out there that yeah. that or or creatures that uh, like different different species or breeds or something that that right. is the source of this. However, I also on a, on a, like a more philosophical level, I think that you know, with the rise of of civilization and 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 with with the rise of science as as a religion of knowing everything. I think it's important that we just sometimes don't know the answer to something. I right. think I think yeah. like the human psyche needs that that unknown. And I mean right. we've that's I think the, the same thing for for UFOs and stuff. I think right. it's just important that there's things out there that we we question because we live in an, in an era now where where largely the things that we've always as a as a as a species had been able to question We've we've went out and answered like you know when our ancestors looked up at the sky they had questions that now we have the answer to so yeah we're no longer wondering about that 
Um, so I've always appreciated the idea of like that mystery as an important element to. Oh, to, definitely. Yeah. And, and I love field recordings of like the Bigfoot, oh, the yes. howls and the screams. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's so awesome. Yeah. Uh, I, I went to a crypt, uh, uh, it was the Milwaukee Paranormal Festival, and like this, oh, okay. this Bigfoot researcher was there, and his whole thing was playing field recordings, mm-hmm. and it was over like they had an unusual like I don't know where these Paranormal Society people got this PA, but like it was like like I would have loved to have played a noise set out of it, but he was just like on his laptop, and like it, I was like he doesn't know it, but he's playing an awesome set of just like hit the field recorder and it's like blown out because of the volume level. And like, it's like, <laughs> like yeah. the high pitch scream. And I'm like, Oh my <laughs> God, like I don't want this guy to stop his presentation. Um, so that, that's just like a cool thing for me to, for, for me to know. And I hope other people can appreciate like the n- knowledge about that project. Have you seen the documentary, the invasion on chestnut Ridge? Yes. Uh, I like that whole uh, series of documentaries. Yeah. Um, cause I'm just like, yeah, we live now yeah. part of this is the, the chestnut Ridge. Yeah. So, um, innocent young throat cutter was another one yeah. that was earlier on or, and that was just me that I, I did one release in the nineties. Uh, I believe it was 94 when I did the first release, it was again, going to be a project that was like a one-time thing. The name came from, uh, one of those time life true crime books one of the titles in one of the chapters was called an innocent young throat cutter and it was about child murder so that's where that name came from and i did only one release at the time and then sort of revived the project many years later and it was it was a wall noise project that i had done i mean i had been doing wall noise early on i mean like i said the serpent orange release which is just static you know, would be considered wall noise. And that was 89, you know, into the nineties, I started doing it. Meat shop project. um, One of the, those releases were just wall noise as well. So I had been doing that style early on. Yeah. So you would have, I mean, I'm sure there's lots of online debate that would be there, but you had to have been one of the first, people really working with that concept. Well, there was um, there was an, an artist, EEE, that were from the UK, and they were around in the 80s. And their stuff was just static noise, and it was just dense. And they never referred to their work as wall noise or anything. Uh, they just referred to it as static noise. So I was really influenced by them. I really loved what they were doing and what Chop Shop was doing, because some of what he was doing was very similar to wall noise as well. So there was people doing it before, but I, I started doing it in the early 90s was when I really started to do it. I mean, the whole H&W, like that came way later. Sure. But what I liked about what they were doing was, you know, they were very specific on how the concept was going to be, you know? And I mean, they had a concept behind it. And I'm a, a fan of like Sam, the Rita. I mean, we're we're really good friends, but he, you know, he's definitely one of those that came about with the H&W thing along with like the Cherry Point. And so when they started to come about, I was glad because I was like, oh my God, there's more people doing this and I really love what they're doing. Because I think Sam, I started talking to him in the early 2000s, and he was a fan of Werewolf Jerusalem, and he had contacted me about that. 
he had gotten a hold of a, a Black Leather Jesus release called Anti that we had done in the 90s. And that was, I believe it was 93 that Anti came out. He was he was very happy with it. I mean, he he really liked the release because it was wall noise and it was like 93. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't really listened to it again. I hadn't gone back and re-listened to the release until I reissued it. Then I listened to it again. And, uh, and I was, I mean, I was happy with what I was doing at the time, but I'm not really, um, I'm not one to re-listen to a lot of my work. Uh, when I record it, it's done. You know, once it gets released, I may listen to it one more time, but usually I, I don't. I don't like to listen to my own work. I'd rather listen to somebody else. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, so sometimes to hear people comment about some of my recordings, I mean, it, it's flattering, but I usually don't re-listen to what I do. Sure. <laughs> Anyways, but the, the whole wall noise thing with, with these projects, I never, it was never anything that, okay, this is going to be specific. You know, this is just wall noise, you know, I think that came later on. And because, you know, Certain people want a certain style. And so when you have a project that has stuff that's, that has a lot of dynamics in it, and then you have another release that has wall noise, and then another one that's maybe a little bit more ambient than the other ones, you may, not everyone's going to be happy. Sure. So sometimes someone who's looking for wall noise buys your release thinking it's going to be a wall noise release and they're disappointed that it's not. So that's another reason why I kind of created different projects so that you kind of know what to expect from the project. So I tried to do things like that. And when I started doing Werewolf Jerusalem, that had to do with, it was originally a title for Black Leather Jesus release. Where did the name come from? Well, and that's the other thing that, that there was rumors that it, it had to do with the whole Nazi thing, and it had nothing to do with that. It was I was actually in my room. I used to read the newspaper all the time, and there was just the paper on the floor, and there was a headline about Jerusalem. But I am very infatuated with werewolves, and so I was reading a book about werewolves. So the the book was laying next to the newspaper, and that's where the name came from. It's really that simple and that boring. <laughs> it just came from looking at two words on the ground and just naming a release that. And then later, I just decided to use it as a project name, which I had done before. Like Priest and Shit was a Black Leather Jesus track, and I ended up using it as a project later on as well. So I had done that before, but I wanted Werewolf Jerusalem to be specific. It it had to do with a handheld radio that I had, and I still have actually. It was a, a handheld baseball radio. It was a it was from a baseball team in Houston, the Astros. Yeah. My dad took me to an Astros game, and this was like the late seventies. That's when they had the coolest uniforms. I, I used and, to love baseball when I was a kid. So I'm like, <laughs> oh my god! I'll show you the radio. Awesome. <laughs> so I, um, he bought me that and I had it since, and I was using it for Werewolf Jerusalem specifically for Werewolf Jerusalem. And it just gave this really nasty, crunchy, static sound. 
And I, I, the first time I toured doing that project, I took the radio on tour and people at the show saw that I was just using the radio with one distortion pedal. And that was it. You know, I would start the show off with just like a little sound bite or some kind of film sample from a horror film or something. But that was the basis of that project. It was just based on that little radio. And for a, a period, it, it broke and it wasn't working at all. I think for almost a year, it didn't work. And then one day I tried it again and it worked again. <laughs> I don't think it works anymore now, though. It hasn't worked in probably two years. Mm. Uh, but I have it still. It's there. And I've always kept it. And I think it's funny because when I did the show, I did a show in Vancouver. I played with the Rita. A lot of people were surprised that the sound that came out of that little radio, you know, how loud and dense it was. Uh, I think a lot of people were really surprised. Yeah. I wish it still worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it'll work again one day and you try it again. Yeah. Or, or have someone look at it. I don't know. So now that that's broken and... I've seen you play performance where of Jerusalem. Do you have a yeah. you have a different radio? Or, yes. Yeah, I, was, I thought so. Yes. Like, yeah. Yeah. There's yeah that we have. There's another radio that Sean has that I've used for it. It's an old radio as well, and uh, so I, I use that now. It, it as as like someone who loves harsh noise and and agonizes over the selection of equipment he's using. When it's always great to see to see. Either any of your like I've seen Black Leather Jesus, I've seen you solo and, and Where of Jerusalem, and every time I go and I'm like, all right, well when I get home I'm gonna sell all but three pieces of my gear and uh, <laughs> you know because clearly I don't need all of it uh, to uh, to make these incredible sounds. It's it's really cool to like, and I hope that like anyone who's newer in noise that listen to this, and I know I've I've had listeners who have said like you know now I'm starting a noise project from listening to so and so or like you know like I hope that you know, they're, they're hearing this and hearing like, you don't, you don't need $2,000 in gear to make, no, you know, not at all. prolific sounds. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's people that, you know, love their gear and I, I totally get it. I mean, it's, it's fine. It's never been my thing. I've always just liked to use found objects to create something and just maybe run it through a distortion or something i can use a floor fan and i have um like i said leaf blower you know it's just things that i find i've you know had a microphone near an air condition and just recorded the sounds from that so it's just various things that i can find to get sounds out of a lot of times i I do use just sheet metal and feedback and i I like that i like and i think the the really high pitch feedback is kind of where crash at every speed kind of started. It was, it actually, for me, it started as a project of my fear, which I have a huge fear of driving, which some people may not know. I don't drive. I, I was in a, a a bad auto accident with an 18 wheeler and, it was it scared the hell out of me. I was driving at the time and it was crushing the car that I was in. They didn't realize they had hit us and they were dragging us on the freeway. I just remember the 
the vehicle was being crushed. And I remember seeing the wheel of the truck by the window of the driver's side and it broke the window and the heat from the tire. I, I thought I was going to die. The force of it pushed the vehicle out an exit because there were, there was some barriers because they were doing construction. So there was barriers. There was no shoulder on the freeway. So it forced us, it pushed the car forward out an exit that came up. They kept going. They never stopped. Holy shit. So I don't know if they were intoxicated. I, I didn't know how they could not know they were crushing a vehicle. Right. So my friend and I, we were freaking out, but the, the vehicle, like, the dashboard you could see was being crushed in. So that, that scared me. And then a week later I was with that same friend and we were in another car accident. This time he was driving, but they hit my driver's side. I mean, the passenger side, part of the door caved in and cut my leg, but it scared me. And I just, after that, I just had this fear of driving and so I had this weird fascination with car crashes and, and this fear of it. And so that project kind of started from that. The high-pitched sound, it kind of started when I was doing shows. For some reason, I always, always like the sound of when the feedback would hit that really high-pitched sound and would just be piercing I always loved that sound. So I thought, well, it might be kind of cool to do a project that was, you know, a lot of the basis of the project was that really high pitch sound because I remember in the accident, all I remember when the, when the, the wheel broke the window was this ringing in my ear, this really high pitch sound from, I guess, the force of the window being shattered. And I just had this ringing in my ear for a while. So that high-pitched feedback sound kind of brings me back to that incident. So that was kind of the basis of that project. Have you, do you, have you ever seen or do you have a copy of Car Crashes and Other Sad Stories? I Are might. You, it's, a, it's a photo book. I, it's so funny because like I was looking at all the pictures. I'm like, I think these are, some of them look familiar in yeah. in my mind, and I was like, I think maybe these are cover art, for yeah. the, and maybe maybe they are, and then yeah. like, but but in the, in my head, I was like, well, he probably has it because I mean, no, but, no. Well, this is good to know. But, I'm gonna find. I want to keep my copy, uh, but I'll find you a copy if I find another yeah. one because uh, I saw it. Now immediately, I was like, oh my god, this is this is the the book of crash at every speed. Yeah, I, I had a friend who had actually a few books on car crashes and stuff. And, and this was a long time ago, well before the project even happened. And I think I used some of those images and, and other projects back in the late nineties. But yeah, that that's, that's something I've never gotten over. I've tried um, and just can't get over. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's certainly understandable given the circumstances. I mean, I I fell down in a a muddy puddle and saw an earthworm and I've been afraid of earthworms ever since. So so, yeah, like I can't even like, if it's on album art, I won't, I won't buy. There's an artist from Milwaukee. He's called Invertibit and, and he is a very nice gentleman and he would always give me his tapes. And I always, I would just, I would look up and I'd say, Hey man, can you just take the cover out? I'm not going to look at the cover. Like, just give me the tape. 
I'll gladly yeah. listen to it, but I can't look at it to this day. It's it's like you want to you want to stress me out. Show me maggots <laughs> or, or 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 things like that. But I mean, certainly that's nothing compared to like that kind of car crash, which is something that alters yeah. lives. You know, I, I've I've tried to get over it. You going I've, on tour I've, now? I have a whole new respect for you playing more than one day playing <laughs> shows. Like <laughs> that was that was the problem. Why I didn't do touring before? I was afraid to do it. I was a that, and also I, I have stage fright. I I have it all the time. Every time I do a show, I get stage fright. Sometimes that's why. I, before I do a performance, sometimes I, I I don't really talk to people. I kind of stay on my own. And that's the only reason why I get really nervous before a show, whether I'm playing in a group or solo. I think probably the, the most nervous I've ever been to where I was actually shaken was my show, my first show in London when I opened for Skullflower. Not because I was opening for Skullflower, because <laughs> that would be... Uh, that's a, a good reason to be, but they're they're really nice people. It was just, it was a, uh, it was packed at the show, and it was my first time there. And I was doing a Werewolf Jerusalem set, and I, I was shaking. And I, I my friends that were there that I was staying with, uh, she knew she could tell I was shaking. I after I did the set, what made it even worse was the audience wanted me to do an encore. And I've never done that. And I was freaking out. And she just said, just do it. They want you to do it. And so I did. And, uh, but it was, it was rough doing that. But I mean, the, the, the crowd was great. I mean, the people there were really nice, but I, I just, I get bad, bad stage fright. And that's, that's a big reason why I, I didn't tour before. The idea of, having that night after night and being on the road every night. But I, I'm fine with traveling. Not always. Sean can tell you, I, I do get really nervous sometimes on the road. Usually I try to, to block things out. I will listen to music and sometimes I'll just pay attention to something. I I usually won't focus on anything else. Sure. Because I just, I try to keep that out of my mind. So, I mean, I know it's sad. I mean, I'm going to be 46 years old and I'm still <laughs> being like this, but I, I don't, uh, I, it's, it's, it's completely rough. understandable. Is that why you prefer to play on the floor or is that just practicality or just how you've always done it? And I've always done that, but yes, that's a big part of why okay. I do it. Maybe it's a generational thing, but like in people my age, like we're all people that jam on the floor tend to have a certain sound. And you're in like, it's funny because like anytime like any one of us gets going on like, on like, oh, like, you know, like that guy's going to play drone or like, the, you know, like it's going to be something bad. I'm like, and or some me or someone yeah. else be like, ah, oh, man, Richard, like he plays on the floor and he's sick. So <laughs> we can't, we can't just assume that this guy is going to suck. It's a big part of it. it. It's hard to look at people when I'm doing a performance. So I tend to look down, even if I'm not on the floor. I tend to, to look down. There was a period where I didn't do shows for a while and I didn't think I would be able to do shows anymore because I had not done any shows for quite a while. But then 
being in Houston, I was the main person that people would contact to do shows and things like that. And then they would ask, well, can you be on the bill? And I didn't want to say no. So I would just, sure, I'll, I'll do the show. So I would force myself to do a lot of the shows. And again, I, I don't mean for force myself, like it's, you know, some kind of, oh, to see me live, you know, <laughs> it's more of like, I just, it, it's tough. It, yeah. it is tough for me yeah. sometimes to do shows. I do enjoy doing them. Sometimes I don't like doing tours simply because it's so back to back. And when you're doing that many shows back to back, I, I tend to get, I guess maybe the word is difficult to be around when you're on tour with. I guess you'd have to probably ask some of the people that have toured with me. I guess I tend to get a little bitchy at times touring, but it's only because I'm so nervous that it's like it's every night I'm doing this and I'm so nervous and it's just, I don't have enough time to just relax the next time and just over and over. I can tell you the European tour that uh, Black Leather Jesus did several years back. It was a rough tour. I mean, it was rough. <laughs> I don't, I don't think I could do that again. Not that long of a tour. It, it's, you're put in a situation where there's five of you in a small Fiat car, <laughs> uh, traveling all over Europe. And one of the people that you're on tour with, you end up disliking so much <laughs> day two. But you have so many more dates to go with that person. It was tough. Because, yeah, one of the the performers with us uh, was really difficult to work with. And so having someone that you're not really getting along with, on top of being nervous about performing, did not make for a fun tour yeah. at all. Yeah. And I'll be the first to admit, it, w it wasn't a fun tour at all. When it was over, we were glad that it was over. Even though we met some great people and loved the cities that we were in, it was just that guy made it so miserable to be on tour. Mm -hmm. And um, and again, that's someone who was performing with us, not the opening act that was touring with us. He was great, but it, it was just, it was rough. Usually every tour, there's some kind of fight that happens and and if you ask any of the Black Leather Jesus members of any of the tours we've done, it's always me with somebody <laughs> that's in a fight with them. Not that it, I, I, I'm not saying that I'm difficult to, to tour with, but it, again, my nerves get to me. So sometimes I have a short fuse about things and it, it just, it gets to me sometimes. I, I just, sometimes I like to be left alone after a show because I'm still coming down from this like anxiety almost yeah. that so it, sometimes it's I guess it's difficult for people who are on tour with me to be around me sometimes when it comes to that but I love meeting the people on tour I love talking with people Sean and I have discussed it I think this next tour we're doing next year might be our actual last tour oh wow yeah we're supposed to be doing a tour with the Rita uh, next spring and JSH from Sweden. And that might be our last tour. We, I mean, we're, we're not going to stop doing shows. Now we may go to Europe and do a show here and there, but as far as like a tour back to back shows, 
maybe not. Just because the last time when we did the Texas uh, shows, there weren't there were only four shows, but by the end of of that tour, I was really exhausted, and also my health is not great. I mean, I'm diabetic, and so that takes a lot out of me as well. So it's it's tough doing the back to back shows, and and these were all back to back. And when we got back from tour we were just wiped out. We were so tired and it took a while to, to recover from that. So I, I think that the touring part is something that that might come to an end after this next one. Well, A, we have breaking news about a spring tour <laughs> and yeah. B, it, it sounds like it's, if, if you're going to be in driving distance, uh, you should probably go to them. Or if you're me, you're just going to go to all the shows and, and, <laughs> wait till like the last day before you actually have a conversation with anybody. Uh, <laughs> but um, I know I mentioned the um, the recorded interview that you did for the hospital yeah. CD set in that. And I believe that was 2000 that you had recorded that. I don't remember, but go ahead. It, at one point you say that you think you're done playing shows. Yes. And that was a long time ago. So I was right. wondering what did something change your mind or. Well, or? that was around the time that I was dealing with a lot with after the situation with David happened, that kind of really affected me personally. And also dealing with the whole Randy situation as well. I just didn't think that I I could do that anymore, like perform live because I felt like I started to get more and more like anxiety about shows. And I was supposed to do a tour at one point and I canceled the tour Mm. and I actually canceled the tour a few weeks before it was supposed to happen. Mm. So I, I just had this huge anxiety at that time. And so I didn't think I was going to do any shows anymore because of that. And I didn't do shows for a while. Then I, I thought, well, if I don't try to do this again, it's not going to happen ever again. Okay. So I, I I made myself do shows again. I mean, and there's been times where I was going to end Black Leather Jesus as well. Like I said, after all the fighting and stuff that was happening at that time, I was thinking, well, I'm going to end this as well. But I thought, well, I've been doing this for a long time with various people. Why stop now? You know, I built this and so i just wanted to continue it and and work with different people on it and so that's why there's been a lot of band members that i don't think it was because i was difficult to work with sure but it was more of i liked working with different people yeah and and again you know people come and go sometimes friends come and go you know so that's why there's a lot of different members in, in the band and now it's you know sean and i are the main ones who who do the project but um, anytime any of the members want to come up and do a show with us, I mean, they're more than welcome to. And I think actually some of the shows with the Rita will have some of the other members. I mean, a couple of them have talked about traveling up here to do the tour. So that would be great if they did. Um, and 
but I think there's times where I feel like I, you know, I can't do something anymore. And so I just think, well, maybe I should just stop. And that happens. And then sometimes I might change my mind about it. Like I said, you know, the, the, the tour with the Rita may be the last one, but then who knows if I change my mind, you know, a year from that point. But in my mind, just how I felt the last time we toured, we were both just so exhausted that we just thought, maybe this is just not our thing anymore, you know? And again, you know, we're getting older and I don't know with my health how things will change down the road as well. All of that factors into that as well. Yeah. But at that time, it's just how I felt at the moment because there was a lot happening and I just didn't think I was going to even bother with that anymore and in, in doing shows. But a lot of the stuff that's on the tape, a lot of that has changed. Like a lot of feelings that I had towards certain people have changed or things have mended. So there's just a lot of that, that what happened then was of that time. And a lot of that has changed now. And I mean, people, you know, will comment about people that I kind of ragged on a little bit, but most of those have those relationships or friendships have they've they're okay now so it again things change you've you've mostly done like tours and and shows as as black leather jesus yeah. like you, it's pretty rare to see any of your other act performances I did, on the bill i did two tours with where of jerusalem yeah yeah that, that's yeah. i i did the the first time i went to europe i i did where of jerusalem and I did Werewolf Jerusalem on the west, the northwest. Mm-hmm. And um, but yeah, mainly it's it's been black leather Jesus. Is there any reason why? Like, is that just a preference, or is it like well, I, like now that you've told me the story about Crash, I feel bad always bugging you to like do a show as that because it's probably super doubly stressful. <laughs> I've yeah with with uh, with that project I've I've you played heavy focus one yes. Year. Oh. And I did a show in Houston. I think those are the only times I've done that project live. And Werewolf Jerusalem was just something that I was asked to do as a tour. And so I I did it. But I preferred to perform in a band setting versus solo. Sure. it's less. I'm assuming that's a little bit less stressful for you. Yes. Sometimes I prefer to be the person in the back, (laughs) not so much the person in the front. Yeah. And so there was a period where with Black Leather Jesus, I would perform and I would be in the back of the stage and have the other members in the front of the stage. And it it made things a little bit easier for me. So sometimes I would do that, but I I like doing other projects live. I think that sometimes it's just people request for me to do Black Leather Jesus live. Well, there's such a but, history there. And I was, I was going to say, we should yeah. maybe like talk about that a little bit. Like there's, yeah. I've read about Black yeah. Leather Jesus shows, and, like different, you know, like formations, yeah. and, like different aspects of the performance. You've had, I've, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe, I've, you know, like you've had non, like people that aren't actually performing music, like, you know, like, or performing noise, like being involved in, in, in the project and the performance. And yeah, especially early on, we had people doing like performance art in our performances. We've had people in cages and that was in the nineties when we, you know, did that. We did do a little bit of, of that. I would say around, 
I believe it was around 2009, 2010, we did a performance at a gay leather bar in Austin. I was doing things with a Black Leather Jesus member at that time, uh, Robbie. And again, it was him half naked and me dragging him around the stage with a chain and stuff. So there was that performance. But yeah, we've we've done a little bit here and there. I think it it's always about us getting together and just going at it with just this noise assault, just being creating this really dense sound live. And that's why I like having a lot of people in the band because I I feel that it captures what I like to hear the most, which is the density in in sound. And I always like that little that little sound of feedback going on in the distant back of 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 sounds, you know, it's just not always up front, you know, with the ear piercing fear feedback. Sometimes I like that in the background and sometimes I like to do that while everything else is going on that and it sort of creates a backdrop for the sound that I like to hear. I'm not big into a lot of the more dynamic noise stuff, the quick change and shifts and things like that. Um, I used to. I'm more of, I like things that build. And I think that sometimes when it builds into this really dense wall, and this doesn't necessarily have to be wall noise. Like a perfect example of a band that I really enjoyed that I thought were so great at doing that was CCCC. Like they just it would build to this huge, dense wall of sound. So I, I like that. And so the fact that we toured with Hiroshi was great. Cause I mean, I, I'm, you know, I idolized his work and we started around the same time, but I was a huge fan of his work. So it was, a, it was an honor to, to even tour with him. And, and he's a great person. And I, th- I think that again, there's just a certain sound that I like from artists. And for me, it's, you know, a a question that some people ask is when do you listen to this or do you listen to noise, you know, at home? And, and And I do, but mainly I listen to it when I'm working on something. Usually I'm working on fashion or art or doing an order or something, you know, I'll put something on. But to me, it's more relaxing to me. And I think like specifically wall noise, I look at that as something that actually calms me down. And I like to just really relax, listening to wall noise. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just various times that I listen. I usually don't listen to it like in the car or something, like when we're going sure, somewhere. Sure. Um, occasionally, but that's rare. Um, I usually like to listen to it when we're doing things like cleaning the house or, or, or like I said, working on fashion. So, well, I'm glad you brought up fashion. Cause I wanted to, I wanted to get into that and we can yeah. circle back around on other, other stuff um, as well. But um, when I, I think, I, I think uh, on the Instagram page for, for your fashion label, so you started doing that around 98, 99, or? I started actually in 97. 97, okay. But my first collection I presented in 1998. Okay, that's I started on my first collection in 1997. 
Again, I got into fashion. Well, initially I got into fashion because of my mom. My mom and my aunt were very much into fashion and dressing up. I always would help my mom pick out things to wear. But when I was a teenager and I was going to a lot of these clubs, I hated what you would find for men at the stores. And I didn't like any of it. So I started going to thrift stores and I would buy stuff and I would deconstruct the garments and turn them into something new. So some female friends of mine that I was hanging out with had asked me to do that to some of their clothes. So they would bring me garments and I would rip them up and and rework them. And a friend of mine, a friend of mine, Rosie, who I'm still really, really close to, told me I should just, why don't you do your own fashion line? I had thought about it, but I wasn't sure I could even do it, you know? So I, I started making some some pieces and I, I started having friends of mine model the clothes and I ended up having um, friends who w- would do hair and makeup and things like that. So I thought, well, maybe I can do it. You know, I have people who are involved in these other aspects of it. So I started working with them and we put a show together and I've always had friends help me out with them. And it just, it kind of started from there. And the the style that I do is it's avant-garde fashion. Um, it's not commercial. It's more about taking garments that are discarded and bringing them back to life, you know? So I do get vintage clothes or thrift store clothes and rework them because I think there's a lot of waste in the fashion industry with, with garments. So I always wanted to just continue to recycle things and, or as they call it, upcycling. So I I like to do things like that because it's taking something that no one wants and trying to make someone want it again, instead of just creating something new that's just being wasteful. So that's why I continue to do that kind of style of fashion, which people, like I said, they call it deconstruction. Some call it upcycling. But I, I've I've been doing that since '97. I do two shows a year, sometimes more. Now I, I have four fashion lines, and I sell them at specialty stores in Japan and France. I was selling in Poland um, and online, and they're all they're one of a kind pieces. Right. I was going to say it's, you yeah. can't really mass produce or even right. Yeah, they're one of a kind pieces, and I I always like the idea of of making garments that I feel have a story behind it, or maybe you know the idea of recycling stuff. I think is something that people should do more with clothing because actually uh, the fashion industry is like the number one industry that pollutes more than oil. So, which a lot of people don't know that, but it's true. So that's another thing. I mean, it's, it's obviously what we do is what I do is very small, but I've been doing the same thing 
since 97. And you, you chose to use a different name for, for your right. label. Is, is that, where does that come from? The label is called Richard Signs. And the name Signs is uh, my mother, grandmother's maiden name. And initially, I didn't want to use Ramirez because I didn't want people to think in the fashion industry that I was using the name of a serial killer. Sure. So I thought maybe that would be a little bit disturbing for them. So I, d- I decided I wanted to use, you know, my grandmother's maiden name for it. She was also somebody who I would see make things. And so as a child, cause she died early on, um, I was very young when she passed, but I used to sit and watch her make things. She would make shawls and blankets and things like that. So I always loved watching her do that. So it was sort of a way to honor her. Then I, I still do the line Richard signs, but I'm, I'm, I am using Richard Ramirez. Like when people say, who's the designer of this? Or if someone's asking me, you know, I will tell them my name is Richard Ramirez because I finally just decided, well, you know what, if they're going to think that they're going to think that I don't care, you know? So, and I was actually asked that I did an interview and they asked me, why did you use the name Richard Ramirez? And I said, well, it's my real name. And, and they said, that's your real name. Yes. <laughs> so they were actually surprised. Right. So I have had that already asked in the fashion industry. Like, why did you decide to use that? You know, it's like, well, it's my name. Is there any crossover between what you do as a noise artist and your work as a, as a, as a fashion artist? Well, I think that um, a lot of things in terms of with doing noise, you know, that's something that's a lot of people consider extreme. It's an acquired taste for some people. And I think the same with the style of fashion that I do. It's not for everybody. It's, I'm not trying to be some big fashion house like Dior or Chanel or something like that. Right. I just want a small following people to enjoy what I do. And I'm fine with that, you know, to remain a small label. And I think in in some ways with the noise, it's the same thing. It's like, it's, you think of experimental music, but there's so many individual things in that whole umbrella of things, you know? And so you have that extreme of of noise. And I think with avant-garde fashion, a lot of the people in the in the fashion industry, that's the extreme to them. You sure. know, this is not for everybody. Not everybody wants to stand out, whether yeah. they think it's for the worse. And it, it just it doesn't appeal to everybody. And that, I'm okay with that. I mean I've I have worked with some musicians uh with the fashion. And some musicians that I'm not fans of, but actually came to me to to make stuff for them. I think that that's one way to look at it as far as like if they're in any way connected. So I, I think it's just my personal style from a teenager being in the goth scene and, and wearing skirts. You know, I make skirts for men. Things that look like they've been worn, they're ripped, they look unfinished. Uh, I do that in my work and I like that, but I, I don't use my noise stuff in my fashion shows. I've had noise in my show 
and I've had experimental music in my fashion shows, but I prefer to have someone else do that and then see what they can do with my collections. Right. I don't like to do it myself, but if some people think like noise and fashion, how does that kind of go together? There's a Japanese avant-garde fashion designer named Junior Watanabe, and he actually had in one of his fashion shows, Merzbao, do the music in his fashion show. And the fashion show had to do with car crashes and car things. So, so yeah, it's on YouTube and, and the music in the fashion show is, really? is Merzbao. Yeah. So avant-garde fashion designers have used experimental music and noise in, in some of their, their shows. Even there's a, a menswear avant-garde designer named Yang Lee. And he's collaborated with Torture and Nurse from China. Yeah, and yeah. he's he's collaborated with Psychic TV. He's collaborated with Pharmacon. And I mean, this is someone who's in the fashion industry. They he shows in Paris and stuff like that. And he's worked with noise artists before. Yeah. So there is a connection there. Have so. have you had people from that from the fashion world like approach you and be like, hey, you're also you also do this and like so for for me, not so much like any any of the other like music stuff I've done, but my other one of my other passions is professional wrestling. Right. Yeah. And uh, I've had I, I have a friend who's a wrestler who was also uh, aware that I do noise music, and uh, he actually had approached me at one point about an idea for a performance that was going to dovetail into a wrestler's entrance um, uh-huh. at this like at this like more or less like punk wrestling event that was happening. And the guy was going to, the guy has a, as a part of his entrance gets like shocked with a uh, car battery. And like the guy usually like sets off sparks and he's like, well, maybe we could like have your like noise in the background. And like, you know, like, like that's an example of like uh, a time where like, you know, it's, it's a lot easier for me to graft noise onto my interests. Yeah. Than like for someone from that world to like come to me and be like, oh, you're so having friends in the noise world that I know now that are fans of wrestling or like and have I have met a few professional wrestlers because of those connections and they've come to my shows. It's always very I'm like, this is a weird meeting of the world. And like (laughs) now I have to explain how, you know, like I I feel like I have to it's like explain yourself. Like what is what is this thing you're doing? It's not. As you know, it doesn't, it's, it's not like a, you know, it's not a, it's, it's not a normal thing, you know, if you will. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I didn't know if like anyone's ever been like, so, you know, like what's the, what's this, what's this Richard Ramirez priest and shit business? Like, <laughs> well, I, there was a, um, a store that I was selling to in, in Latvia and the owner of the, the store knew of Black Leather Jesus, but he didn't put the two together Oh, wow. And um, so he had posted something uh, about like his playlist that he was listening to and Black Leather Jesus was on that playlist. And I mentioned to him if he had heard some of the some of the other projects that I was doing. And, and I think he didn't quite understand what I was talking about. Then I said, well, you listed Black Leather Jesus. So I was wondering if maybe you heard some of the, the other projects that I do. And he, that's you? <laughs> yeah that's me so then he he didn't know so that was funny i think that's one of the 
one time that someone has actually brought that up. But there's been people that I've dealt with in the industry, whether it's people that are models in my shows or people that have been coordinators of my shows that didn't know that I was doing that. And when they found out, they're like, oh, I know who you are. I was like, I didn't realize that was you. And, you know, because there was a a person who was the creative director of, of one of my fashion shows and her husband was a fan of Black Leather Jesus. But when we had dinner with him, we he didn't realize that that's who I was. And so he was like, oh, I didn't know you did fashion as well. So there were things like that. Yeah. You know? yeah. Or a model might say, oh, I didn't know you did stuff like that. Yeah. You yeah. know, and so I was like, okay. So it it's been both. I mean, there's been other local designers here in Pittsburgh that I did shows with. I did Pittsburgh Fashion Week last year. And two of the designers that showed didn't realize I was in Black Leather Jesus. And they were fans of Black Leather Jesus. And they, when we did the hospital fest last year, they were going to it. And when I told them, well, I'm, in, I'm performing at it, they're like, what are you doing? And I told them, like, oh, I didn't know that was you. Oh, that's, that's so. Awesome. So there's been a, a couple of those cases like that. So. Yeah. And so I, I think that I just learned today in our previous conversation, prior conversation off before we started recording that I didn't know and that I'm, I, I, I didn't, I don't know if a lot of people know is that like noise and fashion is kind of your full time. Yeah. Like you're, you're, you don't have another, you don't have like a, like a, like a nine to five, nine, nine job. To five gig. No. Yeah. No, this is all I've ever done. Like I said, I started deadline recordings when I was in high school. It was at the very end of it. Cause I, when I did the Black of the Jesus tapes, there was no label on it. And then I, I started referring to it as dead audio was what I started out as. And then in 92, I just named it Deadline Recordings. And the whole Deadline name came up with, because I was in journalism and the yearbook and all that. And every morning, you would have to look at the Deadline wall to see what you had to do that week. And so that's how that came about. But I ended up quitting school. I, I quit school because I had gotten death threats in school. I was actually attacked in school. There was another student who attacked me in class and tried to strangle me in class. So that was around the time of right before the, um, the Christmas vacation. So I was a senior and I was, that was the end of the first semester. Right. And the teacher knew something had happened in class, but when she came into class, he had, he let me go. But she knew something was wrong with me. And she asked me to stay after. And then I I stayed after and and I told her what happened. She took me to the principal and, you know, she said, you need to tell him what happened. And I told him. And the only thing he said was, maybe you should be a little bit less obvious and maybe people will leave you alone. And, um, what a fucked up thing to tell after a kid. Yeah, it was. And so when my mom found out about that, she just told me, you're just, you're going to quit. 
she said, it's not worth your life. And so when my mom took me to school to quit, the head office uh, secretary, she had all my papers filled out already for me to quit school. So they were expecting me to quit school. So when I walked in and told them what I was going to do, she said, oh, we figured. We already have your papers drawn out and all you have to do is sign it. And your mom just needs to sign it. And my mom was upset and kind of bitched her out and said, you're the reason why people like him have to do this. The assistant principal took my mom and I aside and she just said, I, I know what your son is going through. I've, I've heard all the rumors. I think this is the best for you to take your son out. And he said, not because of him, but because of other people. They're ignorant. But he said, just because you're quitting school doesn't mean you can't do something with your life. And he said, you can still do something. So after I left, I had to go to, to each of the teachers to go get them to sign me out. And so I went to one teacher, in particular, my English teacher. And uh, when I had him sign me out, he was upset. And he said, I, I expect this I knew this was going to happen. And he said, good luck with your life. And he's like, I'm sure I'll see you in a paper hat someday in a drive-thru. After he said that, I was just, I thought to myself, like, I want to do something more than what they think I'm going to be. Sure. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, a job's a job. But I didn't really get a lot of help in school. I mean, even teachers that were openly gay wouldn't help me with what I was going through. So when I, after I quit, I just said, I'm going to just do my own thing and try to get something going. So I started deadline, you know, while I was in school and I thought, I want to focus on this. So, you know, I saved up money and my parents did help me out in the beginning. And I mean, I don't come from a wealthy family at all. Anytime I made money, I put it back into the label and I just kept doing that over and over again and just tried to reinvest in what I was doing. And it, I mean, it took years, but I started making some money off of it. And then I started doing fashion and that took a while to really get started as well. And so what helped me with the fashion to, to really get out there was I, I did a show, it was in 1999, and I was selling my clothes at a local store in Houston. But they were all about like evening gowns and things like that, and more like glamour stuff. And I invited the owner of that store to my show. She came out to the show, hated it, because she said it was very disturbing the models were all dressed in white. They had bandages wrapped around their arm and their legs. And she said it seemed like it was about mental illness and wounded people. And I told her, I was like, no, it had to do with like sort of like a mad scientist type thing and putting these looks together and these models together. She didn't like it. So she dropped me from her store. <laughs> So I ended up contacting another store that I read about called Horn, and it was in New York. And it was owned by this designer, uh, Miguel Adrove. I sent him pictures of that show and I sent him the video of the show, and he liked it. And he just said, hey, you know, 
send me some pieces and I'll sell it. I'll sell it for you. And I was excited because it was a store that was carrying like designers like Alexander McQueen. And so I was just, I was shocked. And I was like, let's see what happens. And um, so I, I sent it to him, but his store was closing because he was starting to focus on his own fashion line. But that was the start of getting my stuff in New York. And there was another store in New York that took it right after that. So they started carrying my stuff in New York. The first person that actually bought something was a stylist who was working on a video for the band Garbage. Mm -hmm. And they were doing a video called Androgyny. And so they had, uh, the stylist had went to that store that I was selling to in New York and, and bought a piece of mine for the video. So one of my outfits appears in, in a part in the video. And then I got a call from the stylist for Shirley Manson of Garbage. Mm-hmm. And she said she wants you to do some, some outfits for her. So I started doing some outfits for her. <laughs> And I actually did some. There's so many people my age right now listening to this and like freaking out. (laughs) Like, that's awesome. So she she had a couple outfits of mine that she she did in a performance, some some shows. Then um, she was doing an award show in France, and so she used one of my outfits for the award show in France. But she had borrowed the outfit, and so she was going to return it. And her suitcase got stolen. Hmm. So I was contacted by them saying, you know, her suitcase was stolen. So your outfit's gone. And I just thought, oh, oh, well, I mean, she wore it. She got to wear it. So it was like, it's fine. Um, But then they offered to replace it. So they paid me for the loss. So I was like, oh, okay, you know, great. So... It kind of started from there. And I think once I did that, that stylist started getting stuff from me for other things that that they were doing. And it just, it went from there. The last one that I did something for was Nika from Zola Jesus. Okay, yeah. So I... A a longtime supporter of the Harsh Noise Arts. Yes, (laughs) yes. She's definitely very supportive. So she's someone that I've I've done stuff for. I've sent her stuff. You know, she's great. I, I love what she does, and I and I'm glad that she's very supportive of, of what I do. A a theme that I picked up on, as you've been telling me about your life with 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 noise and with fashion, is that both of these things are things that took time and and yeah. and patience, which is yeah. That's that can show in some of your work as well. Like things build and and you get the you know as as it goes, you get the yeah. If you're me, like and you and you like the build, like then you get the reward comes with time. <laughs> you know, it might not start with like you know, I might not be getting smacked in the face when I when it starts, but by the end of it, I'm you know like yeah, you know, you know that patience is something that's that's, that's learned and, and is not very common throughout culture today. Like people aren't. It's it's about instant gratification. Yeah, exactly. Like if I if I my label doesn't sell out of all its releases now and it's a failure right. and I'm not going to keep doing it. Yeah, and that's that's another thing is that um, I do think that sometimes people expect that 
you know, I'm going to start a label so I can make all this money, you know, not a lot of people think like that, but there are some people who do. And then they get discouraged because it's not going the way that they think (laughs) it's supposed to go. But I mean, if you're in noise to try to make money, then you're, you're in the wrong business, but you can get a following of people and, and devoted customers who come back to you over and over again. And I think that's what happened, but it, it takes time. I mean, again, I've been doing it for a long time and even with the fashion, you know, there's, designers that I've met that have asked me, how did you get the stores that you sell to now? Like, how did that happen? It's like, well, I've been doing fashion for 22 years. It didn't happen overnight. Right. You know, it, it took a while and I only have a few stores I sell to. It's not like I'm at Saks Fifth Avenue or Barney's New York or Neiman Marcus. It's, it's not like that at all. Right. They're small boutiques, you know? So it's just, it's a small following of, of people. And I'm happy with that. So Alexander McQueen is probably the only fashion designer that I recognize my name as as far as like avant-garde yeah. designers. I'm I'm I probably speak for a lot of noise people that just have been flipping through things looking for collage material and that his stuff is yeah. in magazines, <laughs> so you see it and you're like, Oh, okay, I see a pattern here. You know, are since we talked a lot about artists who influenced your sound, like yeah. are there are there designers that have like influenced or inspired you that like you this is like my attempt at like an almost like an audio version of liner notes for like you know when i when i bought a release (laughs) i looked to see who got thanked and then i was like let me find them and then you know so yeah well when i when i started doing fashion it was also i i was in the 90s i was really into designers like um the brand comme de garçon uh, Rei Kaokubo designs Comme de Garçon, and they're a, a Japanese brand. But she's sort of like the queen of avant-garde fashion. There's Martin Margiela from Belgium who did deconstruction. And he started in 89. And so I loved what he was doing because he was doing what I like to do. He would take thrift store clothing and rework them into new pieces those are the two uh, biggest influences in, in my fashion stuff. And when I would see them in magazines, I thought, oh, my God, that's the kind of stuff I like to do. So that's the stuff I want to – that's the direction I want to go in. So now I actually – probably the mid-2000s, I, I started selling at stores that actually carried those designers. So that was just a huge, like, oh, my God, I can't believe my stuff is being sold in the same stores that carry these designers. Sure. And, I mean, the first store I sold to in New York, they carried McQueen. They carried Vivian Westwood. They, you know, Comme de Garçon, Margiela, Isimiyaki, some of these other designers that, you know, in the industry are known. Mm. So I was just, I was shocked that I was selling at these stores. And now I sell in Paris at the Comme de Garçon store called Trade and Museum, mm-hmm. which they curate all the designers that sell in this store. It's a small store, but it's they wanted to do the, the concept of the store was to display the clothing like they were works of art. So they have these antique cases that the clothes are displayed in like art pieces. 
one of the stores that I sell to in Japan, carried Comme de Garçon at her store, and she was wearing one of my outfits at the Comme de Garçon showroom in Paris. Mm-hmm. And they commented on her outfit, and she told them who it was. And that's sort of how that kind of started. When they actually contacted me about it, I was shocked. And I was just, it was, I think I cried. Because <laughs> sure, it sure, was yeah, just like yeah. such an honor. Yeah. To be selling at a at a store that's owned by somebody that I admire so much is a huge thing yeah. for me. And last year, Sean and I specifically went to Paris to go see a fashion exhibit of Martin Margiela's work. And thankfully, there was actually two going on at the same time in Paris, two exhibits of his work, and we went to both of them. But he's a huge influence on my work as well. And his brand, is he, he stopped doing fashion in 08, and, uh, but his brand, Maison Margiela, is still going. Mm-hmm. And I still love it. I mean, they still do great stuff even without him. Uh, that's definitely the, the two biggest influence in, in what I do. And I think that you see now a lot of like the streetwear stuff that people are into, the brands that are into, like Off-White is a big label that I hear teenagers talk about. Those designers are influenced by Comme de Garçon or Margiela and things like that as well. So a lot of times, you know, people who say they're not into fashion, well, you have your own personal style you have the way you like to dress and that's your fashion. That's your style. I mean, I, I love fashion in all aspects of it. I mean, as you see, like I have tons of fragrances from designers and stuff as well. So I I just, I don't know. I, I, I love what I do and I have fun doing it, but it, it is a lot of work. I mean, I do everything myself. I sometimes I sew everything by hand, so I don't always use a sew machine. I, I do things by hand, right. and that takes a long time. Yeah, to 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 do a whole outfit by hand. So there's a lot of craftsmanship in into the garments as well. I paint on the garments. I rip things apart. I burn fabrics. You know, I patch things up and re. You know. So I I do a lot of different things with uh, my fashion stuff, you know, that I incorporate art as well because I like to do abstract stuff on the garments as well. Right. So that also plays into my fashion, you know, art as well. While we're on the topic of Comme des Garçons, I think one of the first things that you, Sean, and I talked about is how I love the fragrance, the incense Avignon because Morrissey wears it and that's how I – learned it i'm curious as to which uh and 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 it's funny because from from that one fragrance and getting into that i've i've got into i became very invested in what i would wear and how i would smell and 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 i'm i go after a, a a cologne brand because a pro wrestler that i like wears it you know i i pride myself now on like being the the noise guy that smells you know one of the noise guys that smells good <laughs> yeah so i would love to know like some of your favorite fragrances and this might not make it on the podcast this might just be for yeah for me to <laughs> well the the whole thing with the fragrances 
is that especially why I like Comme de Garçon is that they she wanted to do fragrances that were unusual. Like her um the first fragrance that she did, which was just simply called Comme de Garçon, she wanted the bottle to be clear so you could see the color of the actual fragrance. Right. And it was sort of a piss color. Mm. And so people thought that was vulgar for her to do that, to make it look like piss. Mm. But that was her way of trying to do something unconventional. Then she had a fragrance called Odor 53. And that had elements of like burnt rubber, uh, nail Mm. polish remover. (laughs) So she wanted to, to have elements of things that were different. And so that's what attracted me to those fragrances. I remember reading about one that's like concrete and steel. And I've been wanting to, to like smell it because I'm like, I'm like, that sounds like harsh noise. (laughs) Like, (laughs) but it doesn't smell like that at all. Really? It's not what you think it does. But there's another one that's also simply called Comme de Garçon that it's, it smells like industrial tape. Hmm. It's industrial tape and glue. And we have it. You can smell it. (laughs) You tell me. But the concrete one has a very light scent to it, oddly enough. Hmm. It's not what I thought it would be like. But I like it. But the bottle itself is like concrete. I recently recently found a a place in Chicago and they were selling a brand called Blackbird. Yes, I know what you're talking about. They have one called Pipe Bomb. Oh, I was bummed out because I was hoping it would smell way more like an explosive device. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it's really interesting because it's they they even like give you a little warning. It's like you're uh, you get desensitized to it, so you have to be very conscious not to like overload yourself because you can't smell it because everyone else can. Right. Um. And they haven't. They have like a new version of that that I'm I'm like waiting on getting because uh, it's like a it's called like like the one's called like pipe bomb. And the other one I think is called like, it's Cherry Bomb or something like that. We have a Blackbird fragrance. Have you smelled the Comme de Garçon, the synthetic series? Like Tar, Garage? No. Like all those? I, that's like, I see it and then I don't act on it. And then like later I'm like, oh, I well, should have like, on it. They've know? been gone like, for years. Yeah, they, they were discontinued like maybe 10 years ago. Yeah. I see how we never had a chance. Then, and yeah. most of them we bought like on eBay, finding on eBay or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And it's amazing how expensive some of them are. I mean, some of the fragrances go for like five hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah, that's um, wild. I like. Um, there's a place in New York called Co Bigelow. Mm-hmm. It's the country's oldest apothecary, oh, and they yeah. had a line of colognes, very affordable, like twenty to thirty dollars. Um, and actually, some of them got carried in Bath and Body Works for a while. Uh-huh. But um, that pro wrestler I like, he's from Japan, and he just loves them. And I think that it's harder to get over there, so he. Uh, it's funny because he came to the States one time and I gave him a bottle and like for me it was like well I spent like you know 40 bucks or whatever yeah. but he acted like I was giving him like yeah. a very expensive gift but um, God I forgot where I was going with this uh, yeah. oh but which one are my favorite ones <laughs> yes 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 sorry yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> probably from Comme des Garçons uh, the original one I, I love also, their Red Series, I like Sequoia a lot. Um, they also have one called Sticky Cake that oh. I, I really like. Yeah. 
I'm also a huge fan of Margiela fragrances. So there's one called Untitled, which is the first one that he actually did before he left his fashion house. I love that one a lot. There's one called Lipstick On that actually smells like the waxy lipstick smell. Oh, wow. So I really, really love that one a lot. Probably the the newest one, which is called Whispers in a Library, which is supposed to smell like a library, like old books and stuff. Yeah. And I really like that one a lot too. Comme de Garçon and, and Margiela are probably my two favorite fragrance brands as well. Yeah. So it's not just because, you know, I love them as designers, right. but I do really like their fragrances too. <laughs> I, I mean, like I said, like this, that, that stuff that fascinates me. And I actually am like, there's a, there's a, a woman in Cleveland who does a perfumery workshop like twice a year. And I'm thinking about going just to like try it out. Cause might be cool to try to make my own and, and see that's, where it that's goes. That's something and that like, we've always wanted to do. Yeah. We always said if we did something more, uh, it would be really cool to do like a little small run of a fragrance yeah. because we, we're so obsessed with fragrances. I think it makes I sense. I wake up every morning and spray something on. Even if I'm not going anywhere, yeah, I'll do thing. that, you know? Yeah. I mean, you see how huge collection, I don't even know how many we have. Yeah. For, for everyone <sighs> who can't see, it's, 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 uh, I, I mean, like it's mouthwatering to me. Like, it's like, oh my God. Um, it's definitely well over a hundred. Yeah. Yeah. Easily. Easily. Yeah. Yeah. I want to circle back to a couple more yeah. things and, and then, yeah. but this is probably what I use for wrap up, but I think it's a good, good point to make while we're still, we've, we've kind of covered like how you've, you're approaching 30 years of, of being, being on the fringe and and like and being able to make that your life by being patient and by being like being hardworking and by yeah. you know not letting go of that you know you had people that were tormenting you and 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 having no faith in you and and really in my opinion like tr- treating someone a young person how you shouldn't be treated like you yeah. know and it, it's so for me to hear that story and then to see where you are now, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to like overly flatter you. Like I feel weird, like yeah. doing that, but like, I mean, like, <laughs> you know, as someone who came in a noise and around the 20 year mark for you, like I was just getting in, I mean, to have someone who is such an inspiration and who has walked a much harder path to, to be able to do things that I take for granted. You know, that's inspiring to hear. And I'm glad we've been able to like share that story. And I hope that there's people out there that hear that and can feel as empowered as I felt just hearing it now. And I hope that you can, I hope that you're able to look back and and to look forward as well and, and see that, that, you know, like that your, your passion has paid in dividends and, and a, and a, you know, a wonderful life that's, inspiring to others when i did the first time I, I played in london that werewolf jerusalem show um after the show there were two people who came up to me and one of them said that i inspired him to come out to his family and i thought how did i do that and he said well i read some of the interviews that you did where you talked about the harassment you were getting in the noise scene and how you never let it get to you and bother you. 
And he just said, well, I mean, he wanted to do noise as well. And he just said, but reading that made me feel like that he wasn't alone. And uh, the other guy did the same thing. He said, I admire you for coming out early on. And, you know, it helped me to to cope with some things and, and, and it helped me come out as well. And I just think it's great when someone says that to you, but it's also, it's, it's good when someone else tells you, like, for example, Thurston Moore, one of the first time when I first met him, uh, he and Lee Ronaldo had commented to me that one of the things that attracted them to what I was doing was how honest I was about myself early yeah. on. And they really admire that. And so that was really nice to hear that from someone like them. So it, you know, you never know how you affect people. And so that's, it's not something that I, you know, people usually don't set out to do things like that. And I remember I was complimented by John Balance about how early I came out and didn't give a fuck about what anybody thought. And he wrote me a letter uh, about that. And I thought that was great coming from someone like John Balance. You know, it's like to have someone like that say that to me, it meant so much to hear that from someone like him. So again, it was never something I set out to do. It was more of like, hey, well, if they're going to show women, I'm going to show men. Right. You know, but I thought also I went through so much shit in school with, having them talk behind my back and the rumor of me being gay because, you know, I was outed by a friend. And then finally I said, you know what? I'm just not going to deny it anymore. I'm just going to, yeah, I am. So what? So when I did that, I thought, well, things will get better because there's nothing for them to talk about. There, It's rumors now, but now I'm telling them, yes, I am gay. So what? And so I did do that. And when I did it, it actually got worse. And so when I left school, I thought, well, I'm not going to do that again. And sadly, not long after I left school, I was gay bashed mm-hmm. at a mall. I was dating a guy. He and I, at one point, he grabbed my hand. And it so happened, some idiots saw it. And it was very brief, but they saw it and they followed us out of the mall and they attacked us outside of the mall. When I started doing the gay images and my releases, I just thought if people like it, fine. If they don't, who cares? It's like, I'm, I mean, I'm just not going to, I'm not going back in the closet. I mean, I went through all this other shit. I'm not going to go back in the closet for some idiot or some redneck who can't deal with their own sexuality. Right. You know, and I think that even in the noise scene, there's a lot of racism, there's a lot of sexism and homophobia, and it's just, it's ridiculous. And some people look at some of those artists who are standing up to say, yeah, this is, I'm, you know, some white nationalist, and they think, Oh, well, hey, they're at least, you know, that's their right to say what they want to say. Well, yeah, you can say whatever you want to say, but I still think you're a fucking idiot, you know, because it's like that ignorance is still there. It's like, 
we've come a long way, but it's almost like we're going in reverse now. And people are thinking that it's okay to be racist. They won't call it racism, but we know what they're actually saying. Right. And then are people who are sexist or homophobic. It's, you know what they're saying, and some of them are admitting to saying it, and others are trying to mask it as something else, like, oh, I'm just proud of who I am. Well, that's fine, but it's how you deliver it. Sure, yeah. And when you deliver it a certain way, it doesn't come across that way. It comes across as you're just racist. Right. And you want to mask that as pride. Right. You know, in your, you know, heritage, as some would say. But I also do think there are some noise artists that some people think are racist and actually aren't. But it's until you really get to know the artists, until you really read about what they're about, then you can fully understand whether they are or aren't. And I think there are some artists who are never going to admit to how they really feel about things. And they're just, it's sort of a mystery. But I think there's some artists that they're showing you and you see it. And they can call it whatever they want to call it. But it is that, you know, because I've had some noise artists tell me saying that, oh, it's okay if you're gay because, you know, I like the filth of gays. And I'm just thinking, what the fuck? What's, <laughs> I've actually had some noise artists say that. It's okay because it's filthy. Well, no, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> and I've also had some of them say, but I don't like the gay agenda. And, and to me, it's like, what's the agenda? Equality? Right. But they don't see that there's a problem because they're too ignorant to actually read and educate themselves on what has happened right. and what is still happening and what's still happening in certain countries to gays. That's what angers me is that they think that gays want some special rights. No, we want equal rights because we actually don't have that. Right. And not all countries have that. So I think that, you know, some people think, well, I don't want this shoved down my throat. I don't, you know, I don't need to see that. Well, if you don't need to see that, then there's obviously something, some issue you have within yourself, whether it's actually something you like, but can't admit that you like it, or you're just too ignorant right. to even deal with the subject. Right. You know, in that case, I don't even want to deal with you anyways, because sure. I hate dealing with ignorant people. Mm. And so I kind of get upset with that because it's, it, I, I do have stupid things said to me was like, I like you, but that gay thing. Why do you have to be so gay in, in your art? And it's just. <laughs> it's, it's sometimes you get in a bubble with like your, your, how you feel about something. And I think I've been in that, you know, because it, it's a, it's a privilege in that like, I'm able to, you know, like I, I think I'm pretty open about how I feel about things. And I think that that almost shields me from a good bit of that kind of interaction. Like, yeah. because 
I mean, why would they say that to me? Like, they don't see me as a, like, you know, like I'm, I'm not a, a queer artist. So they're not going to talk to me about that. Yeah. And they know that like, I'm not going to tolerate that talk about my friends. So they, yeah. they don't do it to me, you know, but like, I'm hearing this and I'm like, I, I, I almost wish there was a video of like how many times I've like hit my head with the microphone. Cause it's just, I can't like, I can't even fathom having to deal with that. And, you know, again, like it's, it just, it, it creates more respect for you, for me, because I couldn't be as nice as you are if I had to deal with those things. And, and, and like, in spite of all that, you've been able to build a life that, that is, is remarkable. I mean, and not, not just in like the, the, not, not just in the, the way we usually use that word, but in like the more semantic way of like your your life is a life that is you have a wikipedia page for a reason like you know <laughs> what i mean like uh and you and and you've been able to to, to build that life in 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 spite of all these things and like i think that's a you know that's worth noting but i think also that the fact that black leather jesus is is made up of mainly heterosexual band members and they work with me because they're friends. Yeah. And we respect each other's work. And they don't have an issue with being in the band that has all these gay images. They've never said to me, do you think maybe for this one release we could tone it down a bit? <laughs> you know, they've never said anything like that. Yeah. And again, for me, it's... If you have that much issue about me being gay, that says a lot about you. Right. And what you're dealing with. Yeah. Because most of my straight friends have no issue yeah. being with me, being in a band with me, giving them a hug when I see them, even a kiss on the cheek or something like that, just to say, hey, I love you. Yeah. You're a dear friend. Those are people that are comfortable with their own sexuality and comfortable with themselves enough to not feel weird about being around me or someone else that's gay. Right. Because, again, I've heard the stupid rumors like, oh, you better watch being around Richard. You know, he might hit on you. And, and most of the time I, I look mm -hmm. at them and say, are you kidding me? First of all, if I were single, I would never hit on you. <laughs> so don't flatter <laughs> yourself. You know, people actually do say sure. stupid shit yeah. like that. And so it's, and I think some of them have taken back what they've said. I mean, cause then, you know, some of them know who they are that spread rumors about me and, you know, most of that shit's just total bullshit. Yeah. But ignorance is never going to just, we're never going to be rid of it, sadly. But again, I'm just going to continue to do what I do. If they like it, great. Yeah. If they don't, they don't. But I'm happy with where I am. You know, I have a great husband that I've loved for many years, even before we were a couple. Um, we were great friends before, and um, he's been very supportive of everything I've done. And I we work together, not only in fashion and noise. I mean, it's just we we do things together, a lot of projects together and I love working with him and um, 
he's he's been a huge part of my happiness and i didn't think i would find someone like that i mean he's he's everything to me so i i owe a lot to him and he's taking care of me when i've been sick you know with again with diabetes i've been in the hospital a couple of times because of it and he's he's always been there taking care of me when i need him and um so he's he's a huge part of it and i think he also he doesn't get as much credit for his work that i think he really deserves cuz he's a great artist as well and i think he deserves a lot more credit for what he does and it's never been oh well that's his boyfriend or that's his husband or whatever so he's doing it too it's like no he did this before me i as an aside like his un, he does unusual affairs yeah and that's like i love that project and i i haven't seen anything in a while from it i i hope like he wants yeah, to revisit we, that we, or something yeah we did stuff i wasn't part of the new one you know okay. scott had asked us to to do uh work with him on that as well oh cool, cool. so we we there is something new yeah i mean sean is just amazing you know and he he's very um he looks after me a lot on tour. That's the other thing about him is that he's always checking on me. Are you okay? You know, yeah. and he handles a lot of things on mm-hmm. tour. It was him wearing a Morrissey shirt that kind of opened opened up the space for me to feel like, <laughs> oh, I can say something to to <laughs> to heroes and, and noise. I can like approach these people and talk to them. So yeah, oh like, yeah. Whether that was, I mean, that was a coincidence, but you know, it's like. And that's the other thing is that he and I have a lot in common. You know, we're the same age and uh, we like a lot of the same music. I would say like 90% of what we like is is the same. We have the same taste in clothing, fragrance, everything, you know. You know, and that's why he helps me in the fashion as well. Like we do a project, uh, a fashion line, Mad Recital, which is named after a Japanese noise project. We work together and various things outside of noise as well. Again, he's somebody that I, I really, I don't know where I would be if I didn't have him. I really don't. He has done so much for me. Yeah. I mean, I've never been this happy since he and I've gotten together. I've been the happiest I've ever been. I guess my last question or anything is, is I have uh, a friend who's not associated with noise and he's, he's, uh, he's an anarchist. And so he recently with a couple other friends went around the country and started talking to some of the people that have been involved as, as anarchists and that, that are older, much older than, 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 than you. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, these people were in their eighties and nineties Yeah, just because, he wanted to have, they wanted to have these conversations with these people and not even to, to, to necessarily even direct a conversation in like a, a way, but just to kind of sit there and ab- absorb any knowledge that they just wanted to give about anything, just to talk, just yeah. to have that, that, that information. And, and I thought that was so cool. And that, uh, you know, like that in a way it energized me to do the podcast again. You know, I, I, had been previously occupied the last year and, and hadn't been able to do anything. But 
you know, I was like, man, like it was, it's always been great to sit down with everyone and like talk. Cause it's, even if we're not, you know, even if I'm not learning necessarily about like noise, I always learn something else from these conversations. And I always right. walk away like, like, like tonight having this discussion with you and like understanding the, what you had to go through to, to, to be who you are now. Like it's, it's, it's given me like a, a perspective and motivated me in different ways and, and inspired me. So I guess if you, if you had some words to give to a, a, a young noise artist or a young fashion designer, like if you had any, any advice that you want to do in part, like, would you want to, you have, you have anything you want to give? Well, I would, I would tell somebody, um, do what you like to do and not what you think people want you to do or what you think is going to make you money or give you a wider audience. Because when you do something that you think others want you to do or what you think will get you somewhere, then you burn out quickly with that. And I think that sticking to what you want to do, eventually someone's going to listen and more people will listen, but it takes time. And, you know, you just need to love what you do. And if people criticize you, you need to learn how to just take it and put it away. Because again, everybody is going to be critical about what you do. And if you let all of these things bother you, then you're never going to do much with it because that discouraging remarks is just going to eat you up. And eventually you're just going to say, you know what? I'm tired of dealing with this. I don't want to deal with it anymore. So I give up. And I, I think that some people get to that point. And I think sometimes people don't last because their heart really isn't into it. Or some people say, well, I had to focus on a job or a relationship or kids or whatever. But I think you can balance things out with all of those things. I've seen people do it. I see people with kids and still do noise and it works for them. They just find ways to make everything balance out. And you just need to be happy with the style that you do. And people may say like, oh, well, he does the same thing that he's been doing for years and it why shouldn't why not do something else why not move on well if it's what you love to do why move on from it yeah. it's not about doing the same thing over and over again it's about a slow progression of something and that's the way i look at my fashion is that there's a certain style that i like to do but i don't it's not always about doing that same exact look over and over again. It's about s- slowly evolving your style and your work. And it still maintains its value of where you started from and what it meant to you to begin with. Right. And I think that if you start doing something that you think other people want from you, then that probably will be short lived because then you're not going to be happy with what you did. Yeah. And as much as I don't look back at what I've done, 
it doesn't mean I'm not happy that I did those things. I just tend to look forward and not backwards about things, you know? Sure. And I think that you learn things from the past and move on from it. And I don't think that with the things that I went through as a teenager, I don't let it affect me now right? because I wouldn't give them that much power over me to let them affect me that way. And I don't, and that's the way I am now with people who criticize what I do or criticize me and who I am. I don't have the problem. They're the ones with the problem. I mean, if they have an issue with me and there's my sexuality or something, then that's their problem. That's not mine. So I would just tell people to do what they love to do and continue. And if, if you love doing it and you're devoted to what you do, eventually people will really pay attention to what you're doing. And that's all you can hope for. It's just that people will listen to what you have to say. I've always said about fashion, a fashion designer doesn't dictate what you wear because you know there's all this trend bullshit, whatever. Trends are just bullshit. Trends are for people who have no sense of style and can't dress themselves. You know, they have to be told. And for me, a fashion designer suggests something. They don't tell you what to do or what to wear. They're just, all they're there for is to suggest an idea. Right. And some people like it. Some people don't. And that's it. But if people say, well, you have to do this, you should do this. Well, then you don't have much of a mind of your own. So that's the way I look at it as well with noise. Do what you like to do. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you've made it this far, this was a deep dive of an episode. We were looking at well over three hours. So thank you so much for checking the podcast out. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, please consider going to patreon.com slash harsh truths podcast to become a monthly supporter or gofundme.com slash harsh truths podcast to give a one-time donation. There's all kinds of perks if you check out those sites, you know, the Patreon, $10 and up, you get access to bonus episodes and and other content. Uh, even if you give a dollar, there's perks. Even if you give $5, there's perks. With the GoFundMe, same thing. There's perks at pretty much any level. So please consider checking us out. And thank you for listening to Harsh Truths Podcast. We will catch you next month.